welcome back to Australia's third most popular Doctor Who podcast, 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. I'm Rob. And I'm also Rob. And in this episode, we'll be discussing our top five overrated Doctor Who stories. And to help us out uh, through this, we have the star of ABC's, uh, I keep wanting to say, Pippi Longstocking, <laughs> but it's actually Bertram Poppingstock. He's actor, comedian, Time Lord, and he has his own Wikipedia page. It's Rob Lloyd. How are you, sir? Hooray! Woo! Ow, ow! I'm doing my own cheers. Yeah, there we go. The yeah. sound of one Rob clapping. Self-clap. <laughs> I'm clapping myself. It's good to be back. It's been so long. How long has it been? Like, the last time we chatted was... It's been about a year. Yeah. Well, yeah. was it the end... Was it our um, Doctor Who festival it after was, party? It was, actually. Yes, it was. It was yeah. the aftermath of that. <laughs> It's been a while. You guys have been very, very busy. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the world of Doctor Who, in our year of, I'm not going to say hiatus, but in our year off Doctor Who, you guys have been very busy. You're more busy than actually, you know, people at the BBC who put the show on. Well, they're busy making other things like Sherlock, aren't they? So. <laughs> and class. Let's uh, not forget class. They are around. That was interesting, though. Uh, was it sexy was one of the words? Sexy has been used, and they oh. did use that word to describe Torchwood, and look how that turned yeah. out. They're more than welcome to use Grange Hill with nipple clamps, which I, I've patented. It's mine. So That's yours? If you want to make that show, Rob, I'll be first in line <laughs> to play one of the teachers in that show. That'd be <laughs> calling it ass. <laughs> ass. Uh, if I were to get Peter Capaldi to appear in the first episode, that would launch it to the stars. Okay, before we launch into our top five overrated stories, and believe you me, it was actually a lot harder to compile than what I, I first thought, uh, we've had a, a, a Facebook message here from my underutilised Facebook page from John Davies, who I think was the first Doctor Who Club of Victoria president. Uh, and he says, would love to hear in a podcast your views on the likelihood slash possibility of the evil of the Daleks being released as a fully animated story next year. So we'll go over to our guest, uh, Rob Lloyd. What do you uh, think about that? Well, I'm one of the few Doctor Who fans who actually adores the animated episodes. And like, well, you know, tidal waves of negativity came out after the release of every, you know, uh, you know, story with an with an episode involved that was an invasion. I think everyone says like invasion is like the benchmark of where the animation was, and then it changed and varied in quality. But I was always a big supporter of it. Now that they're releasing Power of the Daleks in all six episodes, I'm very, very, very excited. So if the, if they keep this trend up, when it is sort of like you know next year will be the fiftieth anniversary of Evil of the Daleks, great. And the year after will be the fiftieth anniversary of. Um, maybe Space Pirates. So we could get a fully animated six episodes of Space Pirates within a year or two. That's what I'm really hanging out for. We live in hope. I want to see that space prospector really brought to light, Milo Clancy. Oh, oh okay. gee, I'm a little bit Jimmy Short and a little bit Walter Brennan. Oh. <laughs> yes. Imagine that animated. You can get like um, uh, the, the old prospector from Toy Story 2. Get Kelsey Grammer to like do any missing dialogue that they have coming soon to YouTube <laughs> I'm excited I'm very excited the more they animate the better and the black and white animation is stunning I love all the different variations of it but I know I am very much in the minority you are and thank you for <laughs> thanks for it from what we hear the pre-orders for power are doing exceptionally well so I imagine this will potentially be the start of something new and wonderful Rob what about you are you in the same boat as Mark or are you tempted to come over to the dark side and actually appreciate it as with anything if there are people who who enjoy the animations that's fantastic because um as we know doctor who comes in different shapes and flavors and sizes and all sorts of things you mean you can there are people out there who like the telly snaps and there are people out there who like we love the reconstructions and 
I suppose animation is just another way to experience Doctor Who. Now, in terms of whether power of the Daleks leads to evil of the Daleks being animated, in these fallen times, if, if there's a dollar or a pound to be made, um, that might be the, the first animating principle as to whether evil is animated. And I find it really interesting that, you know, for so long, you know, Doctor Who fans are in many ways our own worst enemies, that whenever an animated episode story came out, there was protests and negativity going, oh, this is, this is not good, this is crap, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, the BBC listened and went, okay, well, we can save money now. So when, you know, uh, Web of Fear came out, they went, okay, well, because it's cheaper and also nobody seems to like the animation, we'll release the missing episode three with telesnaps. And then there was a massive protest going, oh, why didn't they animate? And then the the, the debacle that was the underwater menace being released, not fully restored, and, you know, with really horrible telesnaps as well, just to get it out without really uh, caring about what is made. So for the BBC to flip around with their last story kind of just thrown out without really caring, to now go, now we really care about the classic stuff so much so we're going to animate six episodes which is going to cost them an exorbitant amount of money. It's fascinating to see how they're to find out why they are doing it this way. And is either of you getting caught up in the whole, you know, conspiracy theories that they're releasing it to sort of like show Philip Morris's hand, so he brings out the ones that he's missing? Are any of you caught up in that, or are you just thinking it's just a? a... That would be a very expensive way of, of forcing <laughs> Phil to show his hand. Yeah, very expensive. Look, when the people who, uh, as I understand it, uh, animated Power of the Daleks also did that Dad's Army uh, strop for Fraser earlier in the year. And there's a, a website interview with, I think, I think, a fellow named Charlie Norton, or Charles Norton, who says he explicitly w- got in contact with Phil Morris and said, have you found any missing Dad's Army? And Phil said no. And then they off they went. So I would assume that... Uh, the people involved in the animation follow the same template, attempted to or got in contact with Phil and said, do you have any of Power of the Daleks? One would assume that, the, you know, BBC America is going to put a lot of money into this uh, on the basis that they don't believe that anything has been found. Now, it, you, you could... Th- there are counter-narratives to that, that this is the time, now is the time to monetize Troughton's first appearance, uh, you know, 50 years later... And that regardless of whether Phil has found power of the Daleks or anyone has found power of the Daleks, you've got to strike while the iron's hot. And if, you know, if the actual episodes are being held somewhere or are being currently restored and won't be available for X number of years, regardless of that, you've got to, you've got to get something out there into the marketplace to capitalise on this and animation is the next best thing. Yeah, it's just very odd because they haven't... The BBC haven't really embraced the classic era as much in any more than just a token gesture and it seemed like especially by the tail end of the dvd release of the classics it seemed to be a case of let's just get it out there as soon as possible to finish off the dvd releases and even you know with enemy of the world and web of fear coming out it seemed to be more of you know let's just get them out with you know vanilla as with no audio commentaries no special features Mm. just you know purely a money-making spin so it's a case of you know, it, you know the, the cynic in me goes they're not willing to fully embrace the classic era within the modern era they're still trying to set them up as two separate entities but mm. they will exploit it if there's you know they are fully aware of the you know the yearning and desire for these missing episodes because the the Doctor Who fans as I've said are their worst enemies if they find out any sniff or hint of a missing episode mm. they will jump on it on the internet like you know 
like vultures on top of a dying you know gazelle look i i i would think that if power of the daleks is a success if it um if it's well received if bbc america believe that it was a worthwhile investment if the dvd and alleged blu-ray sales um are commensurate with the investment and it's wildly popular then I, I see no real impediment to Evil of the Daleks being adapted. Mm. I think that's full stop. If it's, if it's a success, if it's a monetary success, if it's a, it's a, a sort of a critical success to a lesser extent, then I, Evil of the Daleks, I think, you know, you would assume would be animated. Yep. And that's the thing, isn't it? You know, because the Blu-ray thing hasn't really adapted. Like they did, like all the modern episodes are now on, on Blu-ray um, and uh, they only released spearhead from space because it was actually shot on film but mm. they've just released um in the states or in the uk or both the doctor who movie with mcgann yeah. but yeah. from what i've heard that hasn't been it's restored it, at all it's you just, may as well keep your dvd copy yeah it's just yeah, it's just they haven't got the elements as mark said the elements are either tucked tucked very <laughs> tightly away they're in or, Wigan, <laughs> or it's too expensive to, to get the elements from whoever is holding them, and this is I think it's just what they call an upscaled version, so it's yeah. marginally better. But you, I think your Blu-ray player will do that to your DVD of the TV movie anyway. Exactly. So, yeah, that's yeah. what everyone's saying. So don't be fooled, folks. Just hold on to your dollars. And no extra features or anything. It's like mm. just all the stuff that was on the special edition DVD. So, but with Power of the Daleks, because it's all new animation, that could be something with enhanced you know footage of the new animation could actually be worthy of having not just a dvd release but the blu-ray which could you know of course generate more revenue as well so so in short yes we think that evil of the daleks is a likely candidate for adaptation as an animated feature but we'll just have to see how power goes i think it'll do very well power will do incredibly well it's such a good story and there's so so much mythology behind it so much myth about that story and because it's been missing for so long and you know the the recordings of it that they've got you know the the missing uh soundtrack is just incredible and evokes so much you know mystery and dread and intrigue and suspense it's you know Whitt- no but nobody wrote wrote a dalek story like david whittaker which is uh it's it's a shame that he isn't given as much credit as uh, he deserves because he was a wonderful writer of, of Daleks absolutely and especially with Evil as well yeah. I think with the animation you just got to remember it's like seeing you know a tribute act of your favourite band they've <laughs> long since departed they're good but it's never going to be good as the real thing so yeah Power of the Daleks will be like the Beatniks or Killer Queen who actually are very good or Absolutely Fabulous oh, I haven't heard of them Abba. I mean look the only thing is that BBC America are actually going to show it on, on, on their station where the BBC are happy to release an episode a day in their store to make some money on it and obviously make more money when the DVD comes out. So um, It's fascinating that BBC yeah. America are going to show it because there is no way that it will be shown on ABC. BBC One doesn't want to acknowledge it, but the Americans, uh, BBC America, are quite happy to uh, flog the cash in and also show it as well. I think it's uh, I think it's amazing, to be perfectly honest. BBC America are doing really good stuff. Since they've like found their feet because um, they didn't really have an identity until they were relaunched with Matt Smith's era mm. and they've really pushed through and especially you know, really defining their shape of how they you know, structure themselves as a network in America but also connect themselves to the BBC and to their products like, um, like Doctor Who especially they've done incredible stuff like the documentaries they've made 
Um, and oh, you're on one, weren't oh, you? Oh, no, oh, uh, 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 <coughs> drop yes. that in. Watch, um, uh, you know, uh, Earth Conquest on season eight DVD or Blu-ray if you've got it. Um, I might get to sign mine while you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Signed your what? Oh, your DVD. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's still being shown on uh, British Airways as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they've worked incredibly hard, so they able to commit themselves even more to show the animated power of the Daleks in you know whatever prime time or whatever uh, time slot they have. Is a uh, is a fantastic sign, and also a sign of you know you know those you know a small fan base in America is sort of like the equivalent to a mainstream success in Australia, you know, because the population is so huge in the US that they can afford to do this type of stuff because their small fan base is still you know five, six, seven times more than the population in the UK or Australia or Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> No matter how hard the uh, the Victorian uh, Doctor Who fan club yeah. are trying to get the name out there, it just doesn't have the power of BBC America. No, and and more importantly, uh, Rob, uh, my Rob's uh, record <laughs> remains where he has found uh, more power of the Daleks than anybody else so far. So that's the most important thing, of course. Thank you, thank you. It uh, it taint nothing, nothing. And this Rob handed it back. What? <laughs> Oh, you're too decent a human being. Just to be modest, because I'm a fairly, a fairly modest fellow, all I did was find a broadcast date and then handed that off to Steve Roberts, who then contacted BBC Australia with the broadcast date to contact the ABC. It's, it's circular, but if, all I found was a date. That's basically it. So you actually did what we've been telling Doctor Who fans not to do, bring up a TV <laughs> station and ask them, do you have any missing Doctor Who episodes in your cupboard? And they said, yes, actually, we've got this little bit of extract. Well, it's it's not as if I rang Nigeria, <laughs> Sierra Leone, or Sierra Leone. Um, it was a, a, a lot of happening now, guys. But let's just focus on something more important: um, internal war. Let's talk about the Celestial Toymaker. Do you have any episodes of Michael Goff being incredibly racist? Is his characterization? Do you have any of that? No. Why are you hanging up? Hello. <laughs> yes. So this episode's main topic is the top, or what we consider anyway, the top five overrated episodes of Doctor Who. We'll be leading off with uh, our guest, Rob Lloyd. Um, Mark, was there anything else you wanted to say about the uh, the topic at hand? Or We haven't compared each other's lists, so uh, we're going in blind, as it were. So if we've both got the same entry, we'll just say snap, and then we'll read out each other's <laughs> comments. How's that? That's good. I like that. Yeah, it's how we roll. Childish, but nice. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> That's how I've been, you know, described in many, many of my professional reviews. <laughs> I thought it was like you look like David Tennant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I tried to go at this like with the with the ferocity of Cull the Warrior King, um, but it turned out to be a lot trickier than mm. I thought. Did you find that as yes, well, Rob? I, Mark did. I was amazed by your obscure Robert E. Howard reference. <laughs> <laughs> just try, just trying to keep the obscure references up. Um, it was really difficult because I had to then like look into the definition of overrated and what does that actually mean. And so we're looking at there's many many stories and many many seasons of Doctor Who that are underrated, some with good cause. Mm. Um, many stories that are highly appreciated by the fans are there for good cause. Mm. Um, but trying to find those stories that fans always talk about as being gold, but actually I don't think deserves it, is uh, something I found trickier than normal. So than any other type of top five would. So my number five in the modern era, I'm going to go with a uh, name of the Doctor. 
which is the eleventh Doctor story, Matt Smith story, which is the end of uh, season seven, um, which was also a lead in to the the fiftieth anniversary day of the Doctor story, and when I first saw it, I loved it, I adored it because it had all the you know the the fan bait stuff in there, like the montage at the start of all the old footage of Doctors superimposed with Clara. It has the reveal of of uh, the, the non-canon Doctor in um, absolutely uh, the Mr. John Hurt. <laughs> but thinking back of it more, that original excitement kind of fades and wanes the more you you know, think about it, and, and when you watch it again, it's just a whole lot of talking, and not much actually happens. And the justification of how Richard E. Grant's great intelligence goes into his timeline to destroy all his past and then Clara goes in to cancel it out and then she's lost in the Doctor's time stream and the Doctor has to jump in and save her being inside himself. It's a little bit too sexual for my liking. Um, so there's a lot of talking, a lot of concepts, but and, you know, the concept of bigger on the outside, the TARDIS has gone to the point of its death so it's actually the, the size that it should be and the graveyard of all the warriors who have you killed that's where he is it's all these great concepts that Moffat likes to put out there he loves to put out concepts but never actually have a coherent string of a storyline or reasoning behind it so the more I think about it it's holed up you know a lot of people talk it up as a great story a masterful piece of you know fandom and syncing everything together but the more you think about it and the more I think about it the more I look back on it it's kind of a lot of talk and no real substance which is uh, which is which is shocking for me to realize because when it first came out I praised it you know I was writing reviews at that time for the Doctor Who Club of Australia and I wrote all my, you know a massive spiel about how amazing it was an episode but the more I think about it and the more, every time I've gone back to watch it I've gone eh, and I've never finished it all the way through and the Pananoster gang's there but yeah, they've kind of introduced and then they're put to the side river songs pushed to the side she is put down as well yeah. so so yeah that's 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 my number five is name of the doctor is is what i see as my first overrated story yeah. yeah so in terms of season finales whose approach do you prefer moffat's or rtd's to be honest with you i prefer uh barry letts's ending you know he how he finished yeah. off a season how would you do it just wrap up the end of that story and then move and on move what on. they did in the yeah. classic era. understated i've never liked me personally, I've never found that they've been able to get the end of a season right yeah. within um, the modern Doctor Who. I think, you know, Parting of the Ways tried to resolve the Bad Wolf thing as best it could, but like Russell T. Davies has said, you know, he didn't really know what he was doing. Um, season two of the Cybermen didn't really end that well. They pushed in the whole thing. This is where Rose Tyler dies. Yoink! No, psych out. It's not a real death. The whole, you know, um, you know, uh, Smeagol Doctor at the end of season three, the over over exuberation of season four. So they just, when it gets to a season finale, I kind of just go, eh. I kind of like my stories mid season for the modern era, but when it comes to season finales, there hasn't been one that really grabs me. Like you know, end of season three of Buffy with you know the mayor turning into the snake and graduation, all that type of stuff. That is a great end of season finale. Um, but with modern Doctor Who, it's always struggled for me. So mm. it's always been bigger than last year, isn't it? Really, but there's no cohesion or comprehension in some cases. Yeah, I mean, they uh, Moffat Moffat's best effort is probably the end of his first season. You know, tying it all together with 
um, something borrowed, something blue, something new, something old with the whole wedding tradition and to bring the TARDIS back and but the whole loss of memory and then the memory magically comes back to, to Amy just willing the Doctor back is a little bit of a cop-out. So a lot of those season finales for me don't really work and I'm, I'm more than happy for the entourage of, you know, criticism and negativity come my way but I've always get to the season finales of Doctor Who and go well the best stuff is behind me let's just get through this 45 minutes to an hour of overinflation and uh, overinflated fandom and then move on to new stuff in the new season does the production team get exhausted by the end of it all but then then as as, as Rob said I mean season the, the Buffy seasons were 20 odd episodes and there was no sign of any flagging um, you know for most of their season finales and there, there wasn't this this urge to you know, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, as you sort of found with the RTD era, and to an extent, uh, Stephen Moffat. Yeah, I mean, RTD openly said he took so much inspiration for Modern Who off um, Joss Whedon, off what Joss Whedon did. He kind of defined the modern, um, you know, cult or pop culture TV series with Buffy and how introducing the main bad how he did season arcs for and they kind of stuck to that format and it became kind of like a you know they kind kind of tied themselves down that they followed the same format every season for seven years and then they carried that on with Angel as well so for Russell T followed that format but tried to mix it up a little bit and find other ways to do it but he only had 13 episodes whereas Buffy had 22 or 24 so they could stretch things out develop characters more plus they had more of an ensemble in Buffy as opposed to Doctor Who when you've only got the Doctor and the Companion. Did Whedon have a writer's room? He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he had Jane Esposito and... and right, um, so that's a problem. So, yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. They need that writer's room to, to bounce ideas off and get the pressure off the main writer. Mm. I'm surprised he's lasted this long, personally. Yeah. Off of just, the amount, just draining the amount of ideas he's got to try and come up with. And, and, and like, yeah, I don't think most of them have worked. If you read Moffat's response to Barrowman's claim... Um, it, it, it is it, it reads to me like you know the last final act of an exhausted man who has to sort of deal with this sort of not rubbish but this sort of sniping from the sidelines and you know I'm, I'm tired of this but I actually have to respond yeah exactly I mean one thing I found from from you know what you can see is the BBC are very and it's interesting because it's Doctor Who which has survived on change the BBC have been very scared of that exact word of change they wanted Russell T to stay as long as he could they didn't want to mix up the format at all and they're a bit hesitant with with Moffat but now he's here they've been trying to keep him as long as they could and they'll do the same with Chibnall as well they'll try and keep Chibnall in charge whereas when in classic Doctor Who they had production teams changing you know well in the 60s era they were changing every year or two and that, yeah. I think that was instability but you look at the solid era Barry Letts was there for a good five years five years yeah um, and that was one of the longer eras and it, well, not looking at John Nathan Turner but you've got you know Hinchcliffe and uh, Robert Holmes knew when to move on and all that type of stuff so in that 60s 70s era you know um, Derek Sherwood was there for about three years as well even two I think so having a healthy turnover of about two or three years of of a production crew is the way of that show moving forward but BBC likes to have you know the bottom dollar they like to have that merchandise moving along that that consistency happening so that's in many ways you know hampering um, the uh, the development of the show I mean which, Stephen yeah Stephen Moffat's been there two years less than what J&T had yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's 
that's gobsmacking. And especially because he, you know, made a point of stretching out a season over a year and a half or two yes. years. So he's stayed long. He's done less less episodes, yeah. Yeah. but he stayed longer. And also, you know, he's been you know pushed Didn't, by yeah. Sherlock and, and stuff Sherlock like that. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think season nine was a season eight and nine was a remarkable improvement of the writing. You could see that he he divided his time better instead of trying to do everything at the same time. Mm. He went. I'll do Sherlock in this time and now I'll focus solely on Who and the Who stories improved in the modern era after Stephen Moffat didn't try to do everything together you know Matt Smith's era was crippled by the fact that he was writing Sherlock at the same time and Sherlock suffered as well Jack of all trades master of none and it showed in in, in, in the writing The Abominable Bride was abominable oh. wasn't it really <laughs> oh, I've, I've seen it once and that's enough. that was enough that's it enough. was too much yeah yes all right, Mark. So your uh, your fifth uh, most overrated show on your list. So my number five is uh, Terror of the Vervoids, the mm-hmm. alleged jewel in the crown of season twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> Eighteen months is too long to wait. Uh, rang the battle cry that was Doctor in Distress, which Rob and I uh, sing nearly every day. Uh, but 18 months was still not long enough for Eric Sayward to find a decent script <laughs> for the most important relaunch in the show's history. The fabulous Baker twins were called upon the last minute to uh, deliver the goods quickly, and in this case, a murder mystery on a spaceship. Um, but however, there was one small problem with this. Eric Sayward actually had quit, so really there was nobody there to actually script edit the bloody thing whatsoever. So they got the man John Nathan Turner to script edit this, so not only is he producing it, he's also script editing it. And JNT, as we do know, uh, as a script editor, as a script editor he's a and wonderful story producer. writer, it wasn't one of his stronger points. <laughs> the production looks cheaper than normal. Uh, the dialogue is clunky uh, and atrocious. You know, you make a great cup of coffee, Janet. Uh, always is a pickup line I used to use when I was a young man. And the frankly bizarre, prota- uh, the bizarre-looking protagonists, uh, which look slightly like female genitalia. <laughs> Jeez, you went there, didn't you, Mark? You had to go check out the Wikipedia page because it actually uses the right word. I've actually made it family friendly. And Bonnie Langford's turn out to 11 performance. Uh, and of course, you've got those, you know, interminable trial scenes. It's really, it's not very good at all. And the pacing's all over the place. When people talk about Trial of a Time Lord and say this is a better story, I actually think Mind Warp is much more interesting for me <laughs> because it took me 30 years to work out what the actual actually happened. Um, I just think Mind Warp is a much more interesting concept and story uh, for me than what that was served up because it is bad I think <laughs> poor old terror out of Trial of Time Lord what's your I'll <laughs> use the word highlight with air quotes here <laughs> the only real weak story is Mysterious Planet and we all know why for a variety of reasons I mean look you're right Trial Trial doesn't fly unfortunately the concept is, is hackneyed the execution is uh, it is fumbled but, I mean, I like The Ultimate Foe, um, especially the first episode. I don't mind Terror, and look, Mind Warp would be really good. I think it would be one of the better Colin Baker stories, if not for the fact that Brian Blessed is screaming in every scene. I'd rather have Brian any day than Bonnie. Brian Blessed was one of the premier actors in the late yeah. 70s, and then he got a bit of the Flash Gordon money, and then that was it. <laughs> that was it. I mean, like Hitler, he was must have been hopped up on methamphetamines, and he has been for the better part of 40 years, and it's just done nothing wow, for his acting. there as well. Gee, Mark, but, but Mark's not the genitalia though. look. You've gone with the Hitler comparisons. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, it, like, um, like I've said before, I think the most fascinating part of the DVD release of 
the trial of time lord is watching the documentaries i don't you, oh, don't, yeah. you, don't, you don't watch the actual episodes you watch how this happened mm. and how a show that was off the air for 18 months just went back it had its chance to reboot and do everything right new and it just but nobody want nobody wanted it nobody wanted to be there nobody wanted to do this the only person who wanted to be there was colin baker and no one really cared and, and even one changer could have done to make it slightly less camp than what it was was change that bloody costume yeah that was if jnt only had to make one decision it should have been that but they made it even more camp with the yellow starry oh, uh, yeah it's yeah so all those stories uh, sort of like you know what could have been you look at them and they could have been so much more the whole season could have been so much more and it just fell back to the the, the same writers they've used before the same tropes they've used before um, bringing in a, a more you know positive companion was a good move but even the relationship with Perry and the Sixth Doctor was was changing the kind of hmm. Colin and Perry and um, Nicola knew what to do to make the dialogue better as opposed to bickering but yeah, and all these brave decisions they made, like killing off a companion, like bringing in a future doctor, it all watered down at the end and they got cold feet and they went, no, 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 we couldn't kill her. So she's gone off and married Brian Blessed, which is kind of a punishment worse than death. And then, okay, no, 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 he's not a future doctor. He's an amalgamation of all the evil parts. So it's this whole watered down approach. We wanted bold, we wanted big, we wanted brave, and we just got the usual tepid, responses of nobody wanting to offend anybody mm. and it just you know bored everybody and you've got two theatrical leads playing it you know colin baker's quite a theatrical actor yes and with bonnie together the star of the west End. that's right it just it just seems as i said turn up to 11 everybody's just playing it too hard yeah i mean a yeah. doctor who at that time was shot like it was a play really it was mm. all multi-cam but no one was there telling their lead actors to you know you know, treat it like it's not, you know, they're performing in the West End. They're actually, the camera is right up close and can see you. You don't need to be performing to the to the back row. I will give it something, though. The end of episode one where Bonnie Langford screams in the key, the same key as the theme tune, uh, closing out. That's actually not too bad. I'm going to paraphrase Bill, Bill Bailey here, you know. Bonnie Langford hitting that scream at the same note that the closing credit goes out on is kind of like you being hit over the head repeatedly by a piece of Ikea furniture. <laughs> it's really annoying, but you've got to admire the craftsmanship. <laughs> and having spent a couple of hours putting a desk together, I can attest to that. <laughs> what about... Only a couple, Only a couple of hours. Of hours. We'll, we'll talk about it offline. What about you, Rob? What's, uh, what's your number five? Well, I went with the horror oh, of... Fa- no, I didn't. Oh, <laughs> just do it. That was going to be our number one. We're both going to say it was our number one just to get a reaction from you. It would never be that. That's awesome. I would never betray the horror no, of Fang Life. I am... Um, I... Uh, just to be even-handed, I was looking at some... Cla- I was looking through uh, the list of classic uh, series episodes and I was... I was looking through, you know, Hartnell, and I haven't watched enough of Hartnell to be able to make a sort of a decision on what's overrated and not. Troughton, no, I really, I haven't. Again, I haven't seen a lot of season uh, six. I was looking at Pertwee, and aside from his first series, um, the rest of uh, Pertwee's output is 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 very variable. But again, I haven't seen a, a, a lot of it to be able to comment. I went with, well, I was, it was a toss-up. I was thinking about doing City of Death just to be a little bit controversial. <laughs> But I settled on Mask of Mandragora. Ooh. Now, look, 
this is uh, I, I I really enjoy I I have fond memories of watching Mask of Mandragora but in the last school holidays I sat down with my two daughters and I said look we're going to watch a couple of stories Doctor Who stories one is from a really good part of the series and another one is from a less part less good part of the series and that was you know Mask of Mandragora and um the other one was the Nightmare of Eden. <laughs> what a contrast. <laughs> what a contrast. And as it turned out, I think my daughters enjoyed the colour and movement of Nightmare of Eden more than Mask of Mandragora. But that's not why I, 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 I put Mask in the overrated. I was watching it and I was thinking, yes, the setting is, 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 is different. It's in Italy. Uh, it's 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 not in an English village as such. There's there's a there's a there's a definitely a medieval Italian flavour there. Um, yeah, Port Marion is yeah. But um, and and the, the the evil is sufficiently evil and all that. But I just I was sort of I, my response to watching it again after so many years was this is all a bit flat. This is all a bit um, just sort of humdrum, a little bit humdrum. There's 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 not enough. You know, uh, Giuliano's uh, uncle isn't sufficiently, you know, um, evil to sort of, sort of, uh, sort of bring that character to life, and and the fellow who's playing Hieronymus, I mean, his 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 evil is not evil enough to sort of live, elevate the material around him. Um, it's it's a good story, and I like it, but I think the praise that it gets. Um, is is it misses the mark a little? I I just think in a, in a season um, that uh, that it is sort of in with, uh, it it doesn't really distinguish itself sufficiently enough to sort of get um, get higher marks from me. I mean, the preceding story is the Seeds of Doom, which we all know is a stone cold classic, um, and even the Hand of Fear, you know, set in the sort of the, ostensibly the modern day, um, is I think is a, is a, is a more uh, story that sort of lingers longer in the memory. But Mask, I think. Uh, it for me, I was actually surprised to realise that it's not as good as I've always thought it was. For me, Mask of Mandragora is one of the missing stories, one of the sort of like forgotten stories, because it is wedged between all these iconic stories, like you know, um, you know, Seeds of Seeds of Doom and Sarah Jane's final story with Hand of Fear, and then the introduction of Leela, which you know, with you know, Face of Evil and Robots of Death, and so it's for me, it's one of the forgotten stories that it's kind of there but no one really pays attention to it and it's, i guess it is that case it is a bit bland it's shot beautifully the script is fine it doesn't push itself in any type of majorly direct way the villain is kind of just a, a ball of light really and so it's that how yes the human characters are played out and so i've always i always loved it but it's not one i go to so when i you know i haven't heard that much praise about it because it you know that's why i wouldn't really consider it an overrated story because it's sort of like forgotten people forget about it but um but yeah i can see it's sort of like it just doesn't really live up to the potential and what else it's surrounded by in that era it's like planet of evil isn't it oh yeah and it's in the same bucket like it's it's wedged between morbius uh pyramids of mars zygons zygons that's it thank you rob <laughs> and it's just, sort of, it's, just it's just forgotten isn't it, it I, I haven't watched it in years so yeah but yeah. um i can i can see sort of like that it is one of those stories that kind of blends into the background um i haven't heard that much praise for it so mm. so if there's more people praising it I'd, I'd, I'd like to know where it is so i can sort of like get involved in the discussions number four very good now rob um your fourth top overrated story i did the same thing trying to look at you know 
uh, eras and stuff like that. So it's interesting that Mark went for a Colin Baker story because I didn't know any of his stories would, you know, was regarded in any type of appreciation. Um, the stories I like in the Colin Baker era. Um, but so I went for, so I was looking at, you know, a Davison era story and a story that I think gets a lot of attention, a lot of praise, a lot of talk. And one that I think is, it doesn't really deserve that much praise is Resurrection of the Daleks. Mm. It's an overly bloody story and overly, you know, um, violent story. And especially at the end, it gets to the point where this was Saywood's problems. He thought we'll have threat by the amount of people we kill. The more people we kill, the more threatening and more suspenseful this story will be. And it's kind of like the same mistake they made in the Fifth Doctor era. The more we have characters arguing, the more drama we bring into it. No, 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 no. no. That's not drama. Mm. That's bickering and it's annoying. And so it's the same thing. So like in the opening shot, there's just these people that we don't know and who've never seen are just all wiped out. And by the end of it, there's a massive extermination of all these human characters that we have kind of got to know. Um, It's, uh, you know, and worst of all, worst of all, they've got this fantastic send off for Tegan. Tegan's had enough. She is just distraught. She's seen too many people die and she goes, it's just not fun anymore, Doctor. And she just runs off. And he's like, don't let it leave like this. Don't let it end like this. And she goes, I'm sorry, and just runs off. Perfect. And we have never seen a companion go like that. Perfect. Bring it down. The Doctor and Turlo were shaken by it. They should get in their TARDIS and go, and that's the end of it. But no, they balls it all up because she runs back, teary-eyed, trying to say one last thing, and you just go, Oh, you screwed it up, you damn maniacs! Um, they had this great way that could have redeemed not the whole story, but just that moment, and that would have been a perfect moment. So I kind of try and ignore that horrible sentimental and out of character return from Tegan and try and end it at that powerful moment where she can't even look at him anymore can't even look at all the death around her and all the corpses around her and just runs off in her heels which is still remarkable she ran in heels for an entire three years on Who um, but yeah that that kind of yeah it's just a whole story of people praise it going oh you know, you know Terry Malloy in high form and just this you know space opera adventure and this darkly morbid uh, you know approach to Doctor Who is edgy and all this type of stuff for me it just fails flat and uses tropes in a clumsy way so, I call it it's like Earthshock but without any of the charm yeah that's yeah. what I call it these days well it doesn't have like Earthshock yeah. is really held together by an amazing first episode and mm. it kind of peters off in the final three but with yeah Resurrection it just clumsily moves and they try to capture another moment like in Genesis of the Daleks where the Doctor's there and he has the Daleks life in his hands the fourth Doctor's there going you know do I have that right and then they try and capture that same moment with you know Peter Davison standing over Davros with the gun doing do I do this is this who I am Um, and it just again it's Eric Saywood's clumsy approach to trying to capture the essence of the people who did a better job in the past does Saywood uh, try to get it right with Revelation? The same sort of darkness and morbidity um, that he attempted in Resurrection. Does he does he do it better it, in yeah, Revelation? Yeah, I think it's really interesting looking at Saywood because he's a script editor on Doctor Who and you can tell he didn't really want to do that. He never really had that much of an interest in Doctor Who. He wrote some good stories when he was just commissioned as a writer, but as a script editor, he never really wanted to be there. And especially with Trial of the Time Lord, he definitely didn't want to be there. But with 
Revelation, it's his, in many ways, his perfect story because it's not a Doctor Who story. He's based it on some story that he was very famous. The Loved Ones. The Loved Ones, yeah. And so he based on that. So it's not even a Doctor Who story. It's based on a... He tried to cram his job into this story he wanted to tell of one of his favorite stories. And so that's why, you know, you know, the doctor doesn't arrive to the second part. Um, and it focuses more on Jobel and all these other, you know, incendiary characters, but he gets Davros perfectly in that story. Davros for the majority of that story is quiet spoken and manipulative and, and, you know, convincing someone to kill somebody just with his voice is incredible. And then, it goes all screamy and yelly at the end. So yeah, for me, that's a that's a perfect Eric Saywood story because he didn't want to write Doctor Who and so he wrote a story that isn't Doctor Who at all. And hardly has a Doctor in it. And hardly has a Doctor in it. <laughs> Especially the Doctor he didn't like. <laughs> Which we find out later. Yes, apparently. exactly. Mark. <laughs> uh, my number four is Journey's End. Uh, Russell T. Davis again didn't disappoint by delivering another series finale. Not only did throw the kitchen sink at, but also the bathtub, the vanity basin and the toilet. <laughs> The build-up from Stolen Earth was actually quite good, along with that cliffhanger. Uh, but um, just like his other previous finales, season finales, he completely stuffs it up with too much of everything, with all the companions, links to two Doctor Who spin-offs, and at last Rose gets her real-life sex toy. And then Donna turns into a half-Time Lord hybrid and starts typing out some commands on the Commodore 64, and the Daleks get defeated. Um, and in, in, but there was a very nice touch in terms of when Davros recognised uh, Sarah... But, you know, the scene where the TARDIS is pulling Earth back to its normal orbit, really, come on. If that's, Why didn't the first Doctor offer the Cybermen for Mondas, hey, planet's about to blow up. I'll save you. I'll pull your planet away to save it. Why didn't he do that? A lot of praise is steeped on Journey's End just because yeah, it, it is... It's kind of like this, the season finale that Tenet really should have got as opposed to the end of Pantomime which is just too powerful. Oh, it's just awful, wasn't it? Yeah. It's so that, just, yeah. to have that final moment where he has all the people that he has touched in some sort of positive way yeah. around him and to see the console used the way it should have been. I kind of like that concept of sort of like the, the, the TARDIS console should never have been operated by just one person. It was always meant to have eight or nine people, like a team going into time and all having their own specific efforts, which was good. But just the whole efforts of it all around kind of like and then it loses it the more they trail off he's just there going I don't need anybody you know and when all these people leave the doctor's on his own the whole lonely god thing that they pushed way too hard with the tenant era yeah um, and that last you know 20 minutes of him dying it was like watching The Hobbit and you know, the extended editions <laughs> it was like 20 minutes expanded out to nine and a half hours <laughs> you know uh, but Journey's End actually could have been interesting if actually had uh, the new actor or Matt Smith in it uh, playing the new Doctor, trying to get his uh, stuff together and resolving it. It's a, it's season yeah. four is definitely you know it's the excessive use. He all the tricks that he used in season one, two, and three. He kind of said, "Well, let's just use those tricks again, but but just with a blunt instrument now." So he said, "Go, we'll have the Doctor's daughter." Great publicity stunt. Oh, it's not really a daughter; it's a clone version of him. Blah 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 blah. We went well. That's a waste of time. And then the Doctor's going to die at the end of it. No one. No one was fooled by that. There was no one, no one yeah. at the time, unless you're coming into Doctor Who and you weren't aware of it at the time, and you watch it and you go, "Oh my gosh, this is going to happen." No one ever thought 
that oh my gosh he's been shot so he's going to regenerate now everyone was there going not everyone wasn't there going oh my gosh how's he going to how who's he going to regenerate into everyone was there going all right how they're going to get out of this one yeah and it was one of the you know the worst definition of what a cliffhanger is plausible and defendable not at all my fourth dalek oh yes yes I will f- I'm going to have to fight people on this, I think. No, go for it. <laughs> wow. Rob Sherman is a very good writer, and Dalek is based on his uh, B- B- uh, Big Finish audio play, Jubilee, in part. What RTD has done with, with it is taken some of the good bits and plonked them into the first 15 minutes, and then he's distilled his RTD-ness and given that as the rest, as the rest of the episode, the last 30 minutes. The first fifteen minutes is fantastic. It is Eccleston off the leash. It is. It is. It's. It's in some senses. It's audacious. It's. Um. It really grabs you by the throat. That sort of you know Eccleston in the chamber with the Dalek suddenly realizing exactly what the Metaltron is, and his response to that fantastic. Loved it. My feeling that this is overrated or that people regard this more high than what it should be is because we get the two-parter before that. We get um, World War Three and uh, Aliens of London before that, which even though I like Aliens of London, but then World War Three collapses, they're not the best stories. So I think a lot of fans at that time were sort of riding a bit of a roller coaster in, in, in ho- their hopes for the series in, in, in the first series back. And then Dalek comes along, and it's it, it you know that as I said that first fifteen minutes is great, but then RTD begins to reveal his hand with the sort of things that he will come back to again and again and again. Rose touches the Dalek; it absorbs some of her human DNA. It begins to awaken its emotions, and it begins to you know feel things. It is a Dalek. It is a killing machine. It is a mistake to do that. And the you know at the very end where it, it opens its opens up its shell and it bathes in the sunlight for the very first time we're meant to weep for this genetic freak. It it, it it's completely wrong. And what RDD also does, in my mind anyway, is make the comparison between the Doctor, the last of the Time Lords, and this Dalek, the last of the Daleks, and tries to find some sort of equivalence between the two. Where even though it has absorbed emotions. It is not a human. It is not capable of these feelings. It is a monster. It is darkness personified. And to sort of have those two, the, the Doctor and the Dalek, sort of on the same uh, plane is a really big mistake. People love it. I think people loved it at the time because it wasn't World War III. Um, it is very good to begin with, but it loses the plot. It goes crazy. It goes crazy uh, and, and is, is way, way, way overrated in my book. Well, for me, that's uh, that happens in uh, season three when you've got the god awful two part uh, Dalek story oh, in Manhattan, yeah. and yes. so the next story after that is the Lazarus experiment, and so that that's a a bog average story. But I really like it because I'm there going, sure, it's average, but it's not abominable like the, <laughs> like the Dalek ones in Manhattan. But yeah, I get I get what you're saying about the. The first 15 minutes is incredibly solid. The scene with Eccleston and a Dalek, and for that first appearance of a Dalek in the modern era, it's horrifying, it's creepy, the intensity is there, the music is great. Murray Gold isn't overplaying his hand like he does later on. Um, and yeah, it does start to lose its its track a bit, but when I first saw it, I, I got distracted by what the main story is. It is a monster, it is a killing machine, it is a mutant, and what I like about it is that he kills himself 
because he can't handle these human emotions. And he's just saying, I'm not meant to be this way. I'd rather kill myself than actually be human. So that's why, which is kind of cool. People take it as the whole, oh, he's trying to feel the sunlight. Oh, it's so beautiful. He's killing himself because he can't handle it all. They go, no, no, no. The Dalek's gone, okay, I've felt the sun. I, I've felt these emotions. You know what? Well, do, I, do I choose that or do I choose death? Yeah, I'm going to kill myself. So ultimately, it's quite a bleak ending because it had an opportunity to embrace positivity, emotions, and if we, you know, we talked about evil of the Daleks earlier. You know, the evil, you know, the the good Daleks. Um, it'd much rather kill itself than do that. And they did push that a bit with the Eccleston survivor guilt, and there was this dark side to the Doctor. Is is he as monstrous as you know the things that he's you know facing up against and with that? classic line which I think is you know a bit cliche but it kind of resonates for me in a little way you know when he says to when the Dalek says to the Doctor you'd make a good Dalek I'd like to correct myself I've given the impression that this is a script by Russell T Davies um, it is obviously all by Rob Shearman but it, he's credited but a, a lot of that first season a lot of, well a lot of Russell T's era he did a substantial rewrites and from yes. what I've heard from the source from you know what uh, Rob Shearman said the there's not much of his original script in there, so mm. it's a lot. A lot. Of, he, he the the structures there, the shapes there, the skeletons there, but a, it's mostly Russell T shaping it the way that he wanted the episode to be. When Dalek was screened, it was almost a sigh of relief. I think from his old farts going, "Oh, thank God, it's it's almost classic like." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think over time it has uh, dissipated quite a bit. I think for yeah, it holds up more for me because it's. As a, not so much as a story, but as the moment where Eccleston gets his character right, because it's about yes. halfway through. It's directed by Joey here, and we know from what we've heard, Eccleston had he issues. Loved him. Yeah, issue. He had issues with with Keith Bowick. Yeah, with Keith Bowick and Euros Lynn, mm. but he loved working with Joey here, and that's why Joey here directed more stories in one season than any other director because Eccleston went. Apparently, he said. I'll only work with Joe or nobody else. And so Joe here came back to direct so many of season one. Um, so yeah, but it's Eccleston getting his persona right. He was finding his feet with the first couple of episodes. Didn't really know how to embrace the comedy or playing for a family audience. But with Dalek, he goes, this is what I can do. I know this darkness. And he hits the comedy lines like hairdryer and other comedy jokes in there. He doesn't hit it hard. He hit it with this really you know, off the cuff type response, which was more of his... Uh, when, when his doctor fitted well. And that, if it wasn't for Dalek, we wouldn't get to the perfect performance of the ninth doctor, which is, you know, the doctor dances and the empty child two-parter, which is for me, that is quintessential. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is his best yeah. persona as the ninth doctor, but he needed to get to Dalek to get to ramp to, it up. Yeah, to get to that yeah. point. If only had more of those at the yeah. beginning, he might have stuck around for that uh, second series. Number three. I am going to go, I actually went to the classic era. And I went to the Second Doctor era, and I went with a story that finally came out. That's finally been discovered. I'm going to go overrated. Web of Fear. Ooh. Sharp intake of breath. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing because it it is in that era of Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton's era, where it is the classic, you know, base under siege, and they pretty much did the same story different settings the base under siege in that one was just you know the underground as the tibetan monks one was was abominable snowman 
And if it wasn't for the fact that it was shot beautifully and, and actually being able to see those missing episodes, you see how brilliantly Douglas Canfield shot mm. those episodes. That's the thing keeping it all together for me is how it beautiful it looks. Because the storyline as a whole, the whole, you know, trying to find out which of the people is the actual great intelligence's spy is kind of a, you know, isn't, isn't the best um, mystery plug. Um, poor old Travis Older Travis is hamming it up like a like a mofo. Like Brian Blessed, really. You like Brian <laughs> Blessed? There's there's the the fight scenes where the you know the Yeti are quite a boring monster because there's no way of stopping them. So we have these fight scenes where we just see hundreds or hundreds of you know soldiers just slaughtered, and and there's no sort of like there's no hope. There's no tension there because you go well the you know what the answer is going to be. You know that by the end of that all these soldiers are going to be killed. Um, and so you've got, you've got the, you know, you've got, you've got hideous stereotypes like the cowardly Welshman. Um, and the as, Jewish as, um, store owner, you know, he's got, he's got the Yeti. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it doesn't have, you know, that, that face of the great intelligence in the Abominable Snowman with um, uh, Padma Sambavar was a beautiful performance. I know we've only got the vocals of it, but how it shifts from soft and gentle to the to the whispered, graspy, great intelligence possession is it's yeah. And the new design doesn't really do much. It's just the only thing that holds it all up um, is how it's shot for me and the 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 regard for it. I think it's the quintessential um, you know overrated story because everyone goes it has to be a classic it is a classic it has to be a classic if it is if it's any less than that we're going to be disappointed and we can't be disappointed we've been wanting this story for decades and finally it's here so for me when i finally watched it, i went eh, it's a it's it's a bit dull and it's got the same tropes and it doesn't really do anything new but then we got the whole six episodes of enemy of the world which nobody had any expectations for we went eh, what do we care when we watch enemy of the world and it's fantastic it's balmy it's crazy it's weird it's bond-esque it's actually a fascinating story to watch but mm. we had no expectations on it so with with um web of fear we have all these expectations and i can't i think people talk it up so much is because they don't want to admit that the flaws are are there and it kind of under, you know, under undermines the whole story. It's the tomb effect, isn't it, really? It is, when yeah. The tomb, tomb effect. Found, tomb know, of the Cybermen. It was held up so highly. And when we when we watched it, A, it was like, thank God we've got some new Who to watch. <laughs> new but, old Who. Yeah, new old Who. But B, you didn't want to say, it's not that good. Let's it, just focus on the good parts. It felt parts. like betrayal, really, isn't it? Let's focus on the good parts. Remember yeah, the talk yeah, with yeah. Pat Forget, yeah. and Victoria? That's a great yeah, part. Let's yeah, focus yeah. on that. Forget That's about Tobin and the... And the forget that but just focus on the good bits and he's sort of almost willing yourself to say it's a stone cold classic can't knock it well it's like years ago was it 96 or something or 98 when they did the first ever Doctor Who magazine poll of greater stories and Web of Fear was in there Evil of the Daleks was in there all these classic stories that nobody had seen they were thrown in there because we wanted them to be we so wanted these stories to be what we believe them to be and I don't want to be quoting John Nathan Turner but sometimes the The memory memory cheats and that's okay if not for the fact that I've actually watched a few episodes of Web this week while I've been sort of laid up on the couch I would have been screaming heretic (laughs) but you're right I mean I watched um, episode 6 
and I've, been, I've just sort of I've been watching Web of Fear because I've been working on a, a project. It is a bit of a shambles, really. I mean, the, the ending is 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 well shambolic. Yeah. Um, and the only reason, as you say, it holds up is because of the direction. It has an incredible first episode. That mm. first episode, yes. and that was the only thing that was surviving. So we everyone sees that, and you go, and it ends on such a cliffhanger. The Doctor being thrown off this thing because it's been exploded. It's a great episode. Like the image of the TARDIS in space with Webb all over it. You know the the menace that it builds in that first episode. But then episode two, you know that was when Troughton had his you know weekly you know holiday trip. So he had a you know one week you can take off for vacation, which they did in the sixties. Um, so he's not there at all. The third episode is missing with the Brigadier's first entrance. Mm. Um, but allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's shot beautifully. And what Douglas Camfield did with one studio set to make it look like these endless labyrinthian corridors of the you know, of the underground. Oscar-worthy. It, yeah, Oscar-worthy. Yeah. Beautifully shot and mm. using black and white to the extreme. Yeah. The characterization and the storyline is so generic. It's... Yeah, it's people don't want to admit that it's uh, not as good as they want it to be. This and Enemy is the only sort of extant uh, six-parter for, well, Troughton. I mean, we've got the seven-parters for seven episodes for Invasion and ten for War Games. It, I think it, the, the storyline doesn't justify the length is what I'm trying to say. Six episodes is too long for it. Yeah, it would have been amazing. It would have been a classic if it was a four-parter. Imagine knocking that out in four parts. Um yeah, so many six parters would have, you know, you know, even Enemy of the World would have been, you know, a lot better as a as a four parter. But bringing yeah. in the whole thing of the underground, you know, experiments and Salamander just keeping people there under a lie is just so balmy, and it really kicks on the final, you know, three, you know, two or three episodes. But with Web of Fear, it just stays in the underground, stays walking around in circles, stays trying to figure out who the you know, killing yeah, off the people yeah. and killing off the people as they go along. And it get there's no threat there, there's no panic induced because you know they're going to die because there's no way of stopping the Yeti until we get to the sixth episode. Mark, well, my number three is the demons. <gasps> Man, the barricades. <laughs> <laughs> If you'd like to apply for the co-host of 42 to Zimstay. <laughs> You've attacked the Perth. You've attacked my Perth. But it's only one of them. <laughs> no, look, I love the man. So regarded for many years as the best Pertwee story, but mainly by the people who actually made it. <laughs> and look, don't get me wrong. It has some great moments in it. The first two episodes ratchet up the tension really, really well. The night scenes are incredible. Oh, and the um, underground tomb stuff. Is yeah, it's, a, it's brilliant. But when you get to episode three, it's uh, a surprise, surprise. Crack open the uh, the uh, you know the uh, heavy artillery. We're going to get the helicopter out. We're going to get the motorbike out. We're going to have a bit of a chase sequence around. Uh, sounding familiar, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and there you go. Look, there are some nice set pieces, such as when the master's talking to the, um, the townsfolk and he's bringing up all their skeletons. Uh, that's actually brilliant. Bok, he rocks. As you just said before about reducing the, the episode length, I think if you cut down a lot of the heat barrier exchange stuff and the chase sequence, this would be a really cracking four-parter. But I think at five parts, it sags in the middle. And I think the greatest crime they did to this is actually to restore the thing back to bloody colour. Because <laughs> this looked fantastic. I remember watching it in 1986, I think it was, when it was shown in black and white. And it looked incredible. It looked atmospheric. And when I watched it on DVD, it lost its black and whiteness. 
<laughs> I could turn the colour down. But that's another setting I have to find on my remote control. So yes, it's often considered as a holy grail of Pertwee era. I, if I want to go watch a Pertwee, I definitely would put on say Carnival Monsters, Day of the Daleks, Time Warrior, uh, Sea Devils, uh, any day over over this story. It, Hello, it, is anybody still there? <laughs> Rob's gone. I've stormed off. I think his, his gallbladder's returned and then exploded again. <laughs> the bile duct is forming again. <laughs> the bile is taking over. I think you put the nail on the head. It's it's a, a favourite amongst the cast because yeah. they're all out on location. They were all there together. They were all evenly... Yeah, they went out and they were all there together at the same time. Sharing each other's bedrooms, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> um... Good thing the dead can't sue. (laughs) Yeah, they tried to capture that again with Time Warrior and it was just a disaster. Mm. But yeah, as a a story as a whole, there's some good concept. And and as you said, it's a five-parter. It's not even a six-parter. They cut it down to five and even then it still feels like it's stretching it too much. Yeah. Um, Azal kind of comes and then goes and he isn't that much. It's It's a bit of a mess at the end. It's just Stephen Thorne yelling and screaming for no real reason. Barry Lett. Stephen Thorne, Brian Blessed. Yeah. Put them in a room together. (laughs) Shout off. Imagine Azal and Omega <laughs> doing a debate. Okay, that they, they would be the only two people who could drown out Donald Trump in a debate. That's yeah. for sure. And then King of the Hawkmen <laughs> as <he's> judicator. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, there's beautiful little moments like you know, um, the master as the as, as the, the vicar, yeah. as the dark vicar. You've got the the white witch. She is beautiful, and her obsession with Sergeant Benton is great. Seeing Benton and Mike Yates in in civvies is quite cool, and Joe saving the day by sacrificing herself to save the doctor is a beautiful moment as well. And it does have the iconic line, you know, you know, chat with the wings there, five round rapid. That was completely destroyed in the Zygon two part. <laughs> Talk about tribute act gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah. Yeah. I just think there's more stronger Pertwees that I go back to time and time again to watch as yeah. opposed, as Again, it seems like yeah, the people were enjoying making it more yeah. than, you know, the people watching it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's what I think as well. Yeah. I'll go with that. It's still better though than Monster Pelham. That's well, that, that's not that, hard. That's really. not much of a benchmark to reach. <laughs> no. so. And your number three, Rob? My number three uh, is a case of being careful for what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, Doomsday? Oh, oh yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and as I intimated at the start. <laughs> um, in the minds of many, many fanboys, has been the dream of the Daleks versus the Cybermen. And I, I remember reading uh, a very good short, st- brief encounter short story in um, a DWM, I think uh, 180, 181 maybe from memory, where there is indeed a confrontation between the Daleks and the Cybermen. It's, it's, it's quite an effective little short story. It's a short story. A short story. It's a short story. I can't remember what it's called, but I have a vivid memory of it. But that's the only time I can remember a, a, of an encounter in Doctor Who fiction between the Daleks and Cybermen. <laughs> anyway, uh, this story uh, goes to prove that those dreams and wishes of fanboys are, are rubbish. Do not mix the Daleks and the Cybermen together. It, the, 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 Doomsday spoils Army of Ghosts cliffhanger because the cliffhanger is, is actually fantastic. It's one of those moments where I was, you know, I'd, I'd kept away from the internet and hadn't read anything, and I was really surprised at what emerged from the the, the globe. But um, the, uh, the at RTDs, let's throw again, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, Cybermen versus versus Daleks. It's it's a particularly tenseless uh, series of action sequences. They're, they're they're effectively robots fighting each other. What could be more boring than that? Well, apparently that. Um, it 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 doesn't really work for me. And 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 again, we get we get this sort of 
um, RTT's obsession with giving the uh, the emotionless creatures emotions. We have a Von Hartmann who uh, somehow manages, despite being sliced and diced, you know, <laughs> with one of those cuisine art sort of <laughs> setups. It was the Iron Chef? <laughs> exactly. Your secret ingredient: torchwood <laughs> <Torchwood. laughs> with weeping oil coming from the eye. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, she 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 retains her humanity somehow and sort of fights off the I don't know. She fights something off and she weeps tears of of oil. And then to sum it all up, look, Doctor Who is for me anyway is a, an an action adventure science fiction series. It can be spooky, it can be you know a bit funny, it can be dramatic and all that sort of thing. What I don't think it can be is a, a canvas upon which you can project romance. It and this I'll, this will actually be demonstrated again in my number one romance. <laughs> Romance, I think you know what I'm talking about. Romance and Doctor Who, for me, doesn't work. So when the last few minutes are devoted to the Tenth Doctor, you know, burning up a sun or a supernova to, you know, say one final farewell to his, you know, love to be Rose, where they get to that moment to exchange, and then of course he's cut off and, and and he can't express his true feelings. You know, thank goodness for that because the idea of the Doctor saying "I love you" to someone is complete anathema to me. It just does not work. That The series is not capable of supporting that sort of thing. And it's a little bit creepy as well. He's a thousand years old and she's 15, 20. So, Doomsday, be careful for what you wish for. The, the, you know, the depiction of a Dalek-Cyberman war is, is terrible. Uh, it's just you know, dodgy special effects on a TV budget you know, being rammed together on the TV screen. Uh, it doesn't work for me. And again, as a, I think it's a season finale... Uh, it, it it fails the test. Um, so it's the perfect modern Doctor Who um, season finale. Yes, exactly. I mean, RTD, and even when Moffat came in, he attempted. He went with the same template with the season finale. I mean, he could have gone a different way and done you know something more quieter or more sort of a wrap up wrap up episode. He's he's done the same sort of thing by throwing everything against the wall, uh, following RTD's supposedly successful template. We're picking up a common theme here, aren't we? <laughs> They're all pretty bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, Doomsday for me is uh, like season two of Modern Doctor Who is. I do not like it at all. I think you know, uh, Ten and Ten and uh, Rose are so smug, uh, so unlikable in that whole season. They treat everyone as inferiors. There's no, yeah. You know, they are so connected that it's like an impenetrable, impenetrable barrier that we can't get into, like Devil's End. Um, and so it's just appalling to see. And it's there's no, you know, I don't care about those characters, and that breaks my heart because I adored Rose with Eccleston, and I adored Eccleston's Doctor. I cared about them so much, and so when they change into this smug you know, smarmy duo who go through time and space, not really caring about what anybody says. Um, when you, they finally are drawn apart, like you said, you're there going, thank God, thank God we never have to have those two together again. But that's what they, they say about that, uh, the whole series, is that the fall at the end is so hard because they've been smug, they think they're invincible, and at the end, boom, they're split up across into dimensions. That's why apparently... The um, the effect of that is so great because it's been building up the year of smug and all of a sudden, bang, it's over. And it's allegedly heartbreaking. You're not meant to dislike the Doctor and Companion to the point where you start pump, punching the air when, they're, when they've come up and comes at the end of the season. Exactly. There, there's a way of showing 
you know, the Doctor and, and, and Rose thinking that they're invulnerable to the universe around them and doing it in a sympathetic way. Instead, as, as you know, Rob was saying, they are a pain in the ass together. They are completely unsympathetic. So when it does come, it great. Have a universe, have, have, a, have them separated in different realities or parallel universes. They deserve it. You know, it's not earned. Yeah, for me, it kind of works better with Moffat in uh, Face the Raven. Oh, yeah. When, you know, how they do that with um, with Clara. You know, she is at that point where she is. Like, Capaldi's Doctor is not being cocky at all. He's just being the Doctor. But because of her time with him, Clara develops this inflated ego and this inflated sense of confidence that she can survive anything because she's gone through all this and so she takes these you know brash risks that end up in her you know sentencing herself to death because she just thought oh we'll get out of it we get out of every situation and that is for me that it's meant to be that tragic switch when you go oh no you've it's your hubris or whatever it is you've let yourself down but with Ten and Rose because they're so caught up in their own world we couldn't emotionally attach but with you know 12 off doing his own thing and Clara being caught up in this world and losing her sense of balance that for me that tragic fall was what it should have been done and that's what they tried to do in season 2 but they didn't do but Clara's fall and realisation oh my gosh I've been so arrogant and so cocky that this is you know this is my downfall and of course then they you know, they give it all up that she's you know that the doctor saves her and she can just be stuck in this perpetual moment for infinity that's but, right they yeah. del- diluted yeah. when Rose came back and Moffat didn't have the testicular fortitude to kill Clara <laughs> off completely I mean it was just ridiculous living being immortal and flying in a diner I mean God's yeah. sakes yeah, yeah really number two what's your number two Rob I haven't gone after in many ways the most popular uh, and, and some people could perceive as the most overrated Doctor of all. I haven't touched the Tom Baker era, <laughs> and I and I, yeah, and I'm going. For, <laughs> can't believe, I can't. I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm, or a fake rocker. <laughs> I'm going to go for uh, Towns of Wen Chiang. What? Oh, it was lovely having you here, Rob. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, please explain. <laughs> okay, please explain. Okay, apart from the unforgivable, I know it's just of the time and it's of the era, but it's still unforgivable and you can't forget, you know, it is still an incredibly racist <laughs> thing to do of hiring a white man to play a, you know, a Chinese character. It, no matter, John Bennett is an incredible actor and a wonderful actor and no matter how good he is, he just could not cover the fact that this is one of the most hideously racist things to do in a... In, in a modern you know, era, it's the seventies. It's still in what is still considered a modern time to hire a white actor to play an Asian role uh, is horribly racist, and I find it hard to get past that. Um, the writing of Leela slips in so many points. You know, the scene of her being attacked by the most cuddly of all mice yeah. and have her screaming. I cannot forgive. And Louise Jamison is a trooper and she's tried to cover it up as well. There is never in any scene before or after where she has faced anything like that and she's never let out a scream. And for that, I just go, you've just completely forgotten what Leela was meant to be. Leela would have faced that like a warrior. And I I just... It's inexcusable, that type of um, stuff. And again, again, when you've when your most memorable moments are from two sideline characters... 
of uh, you know Jago and Lightfoot. Um, yeah, it, it follows. You know, you could see that it was the last hurrah for Hinchcliffe and for Holmes together, and they just went, "Let's throw it all out there again." In many ways, like I see, it is a season finale. It's the end of their era. Let's throw everything out there. Throw caution to the wind. Let's put all of this substance into it. Um, and there are iconic moments in there and some great stuff in there, but there are some fundamental flaws to it that kind of let it down in a big way. And I think it's inflated for the six parts as well. It could have been a lot tighter as a four-part story. So, yeah. This is what I love about Doctor Who fans getting together, having a chat about what they consider to be their best or worst or mm. whatever, because it's so varied, even yeah. though you're completely wrong. It's so, <laughs> it's so varied. No, the thing is what it probably needed was Strax. Because Big Finish have done uh, Jago and Lightfoot with Strax. They have they? So they've like, had Strax in there. And Colin Baker as well. So, oh, yeah. yeah. We had Ron Baker in oh, that one. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Rob, what do you say to that? Rob's perfectly entitled to his opinion, no matter how wrong it might No. <laughs> <laughs> I can see his perspective about, you know, casting a white man um, yeah. in an Asian role. Uh, today, it would never happen, and for, for obvious reasons. And I'm not going to bother defending it. Uh, well, you, you suppose you can't defend the indefensible. You know, I can acknowledge all of Rob's points, uh, anyone's points, uh, uh, you know, that are negative towards a, fa- a favourite story of mine, and still enjoy the story. I mean, that's that's just part of being a fan, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and the, the whole thing of sort of like you know the ugly man is the villain is kind of been done to death. So there's sort of like those. Yeah, there's nothing new really done in there. It's sort of like you know following the same old, same old. And for you know, as I said, for. Louise Jamison's character to be, you know, betrayed in that way to and portrayed in like a damsel in distress kind of really hits me and I find it hard to watch, especially after such powerhouse work in uh, Robots of Death and Face of Evil, where you've had this incredible start, just one two punch, you know. Chris um it was uh Chris Bolcher's beautiful writing, he knew how to capture that character, and then Robert Holmes getting a hang of it, going, Oh, I don't know what to do. Let's just uh, get her in her underwear in the water and screaming, being attacked by, you know, one of the most, you know, ridiculous Muppet esque puppets ever. And Holmes repeated the trope a bit in Caves where, you know, he, again he had the ugly, deformed man being the villain. Yeah, and he, but but yeah. I, I think he got it right there. He got because, it right there. Because Perry, you know, she was cast specifically because she was a good looker. You know, her first step, her first story. Um, what's your most memorable moment of Perry in her first story, Mike? Pausing Mike? at uh, four minutes, five, 54 <laughs> seconds. On so, my first generation VHS tape. That was directed by a woman, wasn't it, Planet of Fire? Yeah, Fiona Cumming. Yeah. 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 So to have um, Perry conveyed in that way is that she's seen purely as an object of lust mm. um, is actually quite appropriate because when she was introduced, she was just introduced with this, you know, beautiful looks and her you know beautiful young innocent personality and that is something that Sharis Jack was drawn to he wasn't, you yeah. know, the personality was second or third but first it was definitely her appearance and so that kind of works and that beautiful line it wasn't I, you know what, what's he say I can't remember it specifically there was a time when I was I was seen as quite comely as well <laughs> really yeah I something about, about yeah, yeah, I, I, I wasn't yeah. uncomely or something like okay. that he describes to himself as before his deformity he was yeah. quite attractive yeah um, but yeah, so for that it kind of it does work because she was not sold as anything other than this beautiful looking no. thing, and so Shrek, uh, Sharis Jack was drawn to that before he found out that she, you know, she was just actually a... Shrek would have been better than that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and they repeated I, the same thing I, I in do, Time Lash, the you know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it just came across plain creepy. Exactly, you know, it's like oh, somebody else lusting after Perry yet again. Um, but yeah, with yeah. with with uh, with Talents of Wen Chiang, you know. 
Robert Holmes should have known better. He should have known better. He should have been able to see what they had created with with Leela and given her the credit that she, she speaks like a warrior and then that scene it just drops everything off and it's you know, unforgivable. He's probably very tired though. I mean, he's had to script edit 12, 13, 14, bring up to scratch and he's been asked, oh look Bob, the, the killer cats have... Would you would you have that same understanding and forgiveness for Russell T? Or for... No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, because they, they get better paid. <laughs> they should know story. better. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yes, oh, interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, I had to put something out there just to you know, and see, you know, we, yeah, you know, there's only so many stories that are considered in such high regard to go and flip it around. I couldn't have come out and said, yeah, yeah, Nightmare of Eden's easy. Of course, nobody likes that story. It's poorly executed. I don't mind it. It's a great <laughs> yeah. concept. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's a it, fun. Yeah. It's a fun watch. Yeah, if you don't think about it too hard, and, and as Rob showed it to his kids. Actually, I should show it to my kids. And uh, get any chance to do my uh, impression, he died. <laughs> Not bad, I thought. But anyway, Rob, you're going to ask me what my number two was. Yes, I am. Excellent. So it's actually Asylum of the Daleks. Ooh. So the concept is interesting. Uh, the Daleks have a, their own version of uh, Arkham Asylum, where some of the uh, Daleks have encountered the Doctor uh, obviously go to recover or just go completely cuckoo. Um <laughs> But who can forget the scene where the Dalek Clara makes the Daleks forget who the Doctor is and wipes out all the memories of the Doctor's encounters with that race only for them to seek him out in time with the Doctor (laughs) and remember who he is. And in terms of having a Dalek parliament, that's nonsensical, surely, because they'd be blasting... If there was a hung parliament like we have in this country quite a lot, they'd be blasting the crap out of each other, trying to do factional deals with the Greens... It just doesn't work. We haven't doesn't seen many sense. green Daleks, have we? Give them a hope, it will happen. <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, I think a song of the Daleks is overrated and middling. I'll be honest with you. It was actually that, or um, what was the other one? Actually, name no, the Doctor was that I was just going to put down as well. But I thought that was yeah pretty weak. What do you think, Rob? What are your thoughts on uh, Asylum? Yeah, I think a lot with a lot of Dalek stories uh, in the modern series, um, more is not necessarily better. Um, less, less, less would work, you know, fine with with regards to Daleks. I mean, you don't need a parliament of Daleks. You don't need tens of thousands of Daleks, you know, zipping around. Um, I, th- I think Daleks work better in smaller numbers. Um, I mean, I don't mind Asylum of the Daleks. Uh, I think I think the conceit of having Clara as being a a Dalek and not aware of it is quite good. Um, and I, I, for a, a season opener, I think I think it works effectively enough. But um, yeah, I'm not as down on it as Marcus. Yeah, I mean, for for me, there's some emotional truth stuff that hits quite good. Other people find it a bit contentious, but I love, I love how the you know Rory and Amy are on the on the skids and they're about to get a divorce, and the the lasting effect of traveling with the Doctor is now that you know Amy can no longer have children, and for me that we actually see that despair and that emotional impact on her played beautifully which they miss out completely in the season before when yeah, she loses right. her daughter yeah and it's all forgotten and it's all forgotten because ah oh, you kind of raised your daughter anyway because Mel's was sort of like the troubled girl that you and Rory kind of you know your friend who you kind of raised is actually your daughter is a massive cop out and didn't want to deal with the emotional truth mm. of the fact that you know 
Amy has lost her child and she never gets her back. So to deal with that in Asylum of the Daleks is actually wonderful to see how that tears a couple apart. And that beautiful moment where, you know, she says to the doctor, this isn't one of your problems you can solve, okay? Some things can't be solved just by adjusting your bow tie. And, you know, the doctor just looks at it as any other problem he has, which is a very beautiful Matt Smith moment. And the whole secret of keeping Jenna Coleman's appearance in that episode a secret was actually... That was actually well done. Was beautifully done because it was shown at a screening and they said at the screening... Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And nobody did. So when Asylum came on, we saw for the first time ever, you know, something that wasn't spoiled. Mm. We saw it here and we went, this is amazing. We had no idea. I had no idea. Nobody knew. And so for that to happen in a modern era where there's actually a surprise like that is remarkable. Uh, that doesn't excuse whatever middling parts of the story is there, but that is a remarkable achievement. I quite like Asylum. And Asylum, uh, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, Town Called Mercy, Power of Three, and Angels Take Manhattan. Those five parts at the end of the Pons era is my favourite of the Matt Smith era. Those four, five episodes for me really... He plays his doctor at his best before he gets over the top in the second half with Clara and he's still finding his feet a bit with season with the season six before so those five episodes I still hold as uh, my favourite of the Matt Smith era the problem is they big these up they bigged up every episode of that it's series like a, yeah, movie of the week movie thing. of the week almost yeah. and remember some of the, the press around it was, wasn't saying sexy but it was saying things like every Dalek's gonna be there yeah and of course they're all shuffled out the back <laughs> you know the, the old uh, you see special he, weapon oh he's I think he's right at the back over there he's looking freeze you know, it freeze it freeze, freeze it. it you know so look maybe I have been a bit too harsh in it but I just remember from the, at the time I wasn't overly impressed with it and when I looked at the DWM uh, poll uh, I said, really? That high? Really? Okay. But then, that's how I roll. <laughs> how about you, Rob? How do I roll? Very slowly these days. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> it's the bile. <laughs> it's the bile. <laughs> it's brimming. All right. My uh, my uh, second uh, over, most overrated uh, story is the time of the Doctor. Yes. Good choice. I understand that um, you know there's a lot of younger Matt Smith fans out there who adore him you know he's, he's 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 a younger actor and they can sort of you know they love him they love matt smith the teenage teenage girls that's fantastic um and i can see why uh they would you know respond emotionally to the last bit you know the sort of the he ages and and then the regeneration and then uh, amy reappears and it's, it's you know it's 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 quite upsetting and, and sad and all that sort of thing what moffat does completely wrong which gives makes me think that this is completely overrated is that instead of telling a regeneration story i'll say case of androzani he he seems to spend most of the running length resolving uh loose um threads uh loose threads from from the the, the you know everything that's gone before in the matt smith era yeah uh it it we're, we're talking uh, you know of things like um you know explaining what happened in the big bang uh, there's references back to the day of the Doctor. Uh, there's references back to the name of the Doctor. We're talking about, you know, the Doctor having run out of regenerations thanks to what's happened in Journey's End. Uh, this, you know, a good man goes to war. It gets a reference. Asylum of the Daleks, as we were talking about before, gets gets referenced. There's a whole lot of loose ends tying up in the story, which means that an episode that is 60 minutes feels much longer and doesn't seem to go anywhere for an extended period of time. Um, and... 
I, I, I feel that if you're going to tell a, a good regeneration story where the Doctor is dying, he's dying in, a, in, a, in, in an heroic manner. And I don't see that really in, in, in Time of the Doctor. I see a sad... Um, I see a sad, you know, death effectively for the Doctor, but I don't see anything that sort of, uh, you know, does anything to really overly engage the the, the audience. Um, I think it's just a, a, really it's a wasted opportunity. Well, it clearly is a case of if you need any more evidence that Matt Smith's departure from Doctor Who was a shock, hmm. you can see you can see in that episode that Moffat clearly wasn't expecting. Matt Smith to leave. Matt Smith was, you know, you can see that he was going to be there at least for one more season. And so that Moffat had time to resolve all these issues. And when Matt Smith went, you know what, I've done, I've had enough, there's too much infighting, I'm going to move on and start fresh. You can see Moffat went, what am I going to do? And so he crams an entire, you know, doctor's era of unanswered questions into a 60 minute story. And instead of giving him the send-off he deserves, it does become ticking off... The chopping list. The chopping list of things to do. I've only watched it once, and I will only watch it once, because there is nothing redeeming. It is the most disappointing season finale, disappointing end for a Doctor that there could be. Matt Smith deserves so much more. Since Time of the Running? It reviewed well at the time. I was looking at the notes for the, you know, the the, the TV and and and, uh, and and newspaper reviewers, and you know, there's a lot of praise for this story, and I I just don't see it, unfortunately. No, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess of a story. I remember when we reviewed it for our podcast, we were pretty down on it. Yeah, but we're old fogies, Mark. You know, <laughs> we've got stones Spend for hearts. <laughs> I'm just curious because it seemed like Matt Smith at the time was keen to go on. Yes. And then, rather abruptly, it was announced that he was leaving. And, Rob, you mentioned infighting. I, I've never heard any... Do you know a special insight into what was going well, on? Well, there's just... You know, of course, you know, I, I, I wish I had my finger on the pulse, but it's more like rumours and talk that I hear from people who, you know, people who are connected to people to people. There's sort of like... There was a lot of drama going on behind the scenes. You know, Moffat has had so many different producers... And that's for good cause. He's been apparently very difficult to work with. He's had multiple producers. He's had multiple people try and work with him and not work. Um, his issues with his former, one of his former producers as well, worked up the failure with the 50th anniversary to get Eccleston back. They were close to getting him and then that fell through. And so, you know, Moffat had a lot of fighting within his team. People were leaving, people were moving on. and. Matt Smith didn't feel as secure from what I've heard. I mean, you know, allegedly, yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. The speculation that he didn't feel as secure within this show and he didn't feel as safe sticking around because there was too much going on behind the scenes and it wasn't as stable as it could be. And I think in many ways they needed someone like Peter Capaldi to come in who wasn't a young up-and-coming actor. He is someone who has established himself over 20 years of acting and everyone had to pull their socks up from Stephen Moffat all the way down to all the crew. When you've got someone of Capaldi's stature on board, everyone stepped up and the quality of the stories improved and how the production has run has improved as well. And that has got, I'm sure it has got to do with, you know, they could get away with a lot more with a younger actor in the lead role than they could with someone of Capaldi's stature, experience and, you know, you know, I'm going to use the word that everyone uses, 
gravitas. Oh, yes. Yes. So yeah, that's that that I'm only going by speculation and and stuff like that. But you it, you could see in the second half of season seven it was a mess. It, you know, Moffat wasn't coping with his dual responsibilities of doing the fiftieth anniversary and Sherlock and running the show and the dramas behind the scenes, trying to get all the pieces together, and um, they needed they needed a clean break and 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 the the biggest casualty of that is Matt Smith. Yeah, and Moffat's acknowledged that. He's, you know, he's, I think it was a DW interview where he's basically said, you know, there's so much going on and he was simply leaving it uh, at the end of Series 7. Hmm. He goes, oh, hold on, this hasn't been that great. I'll just keep going for an extra year. That's sort of given him a bit of, uh, bit of a push. How many producers has he had? Beth, what's Pretty much every year. Every year, yeah. Yeah, he had You've been erased from Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Was yeah. that the line? Yes. That was apparently the line. Allegedly. Apparently, allegedly. allegedly. So and it shows. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a disaster. And like even his final speech, which is a beautifully written, that's great. It's yeah. a beautiful little moment, but yeah. that's a two minute part of sixty minutes yeah. of abomination. Yeah, it's it, a, it was a reversal of uh, end of time, really. Yeah, had twenty minutes of dirge to get to the, you know, I don't want to go. <laughs> number one. So we're on to our number ones. <laughs> we're all doing number ones, <laughs> literally. Uh, so, uh, Rob, as you are as you are the guest, uh, drum roll. Hold on, I'll do a bit of a drum roll. Drum roll. Uh, my all-time overrated Doctor Who story is the tenth Doctor classic definitive story, Human Nature. Ooh, ooh, ooh. get out of town! <laughs> really? I'm there going. Which do I put as number one or number two? Or something? You'll drive poor Cornell back to drink. <laughs> Well, that's okay. From what we can see and from what I've heard, he didn't have much to do with the writing of the actual story. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> so you want to read Paul Cornell's uh, Human Nature, go get the book. Yeah, get the book. Um, yeah, Human Nature for me is... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the start of the excess of, you know, Tennant playing up his pretty boy role of the doctor and they're playing up this whole romantic view of him and also the the it's such a cop out the the reason why the doctor ran away was because you know he was being kind is an absolute cop out the fear that he has at the start of that episode of why he's running away from the family is palpable it is incredible start it is a beautiful start to this two-part story and you are immediately hooked in and then for it all to just go he was doing it to be kind is such a cop out and pretty much just ignores everything that's happened in that two-part story um the scarecrows are pretty much just thrown in what's scary what's scary it's kind of that whole russell t davis thing what will we have big concepts that's right we'll have rhinoceroses that are police officers just because you know, we couldn't get the 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 Centaurans for this episode. They probably made Pierogi a uh, 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 evil creature if he could have. Um, but yeah, and then he gets to scarecrows. Yeah, they're evil. We'll do them. There's no reason why the scarecrows are there, and they all look exactly the same, and they all dress exactly the same. It doesn't make any logical sense. The ex- excessive hammering of these points of sort of like, get it? War's bad. Young people die in war. It's horrible to do that. You go, yeah, you kind of hit us on the head with that in the first 10 minutes and now you're hitting it at five minute intervals so the slow motion sequences of the kids shooting the the scarecrows is pushed to the extreme um uh tenet is kind of pushing it way too far he's a much better actor than he is 
than he is in Doctor Who. I'm, I'm saying it. He has done beautiful work when he has directed well outside of Doctor Who. Um, but yeah, his John Smith is still got the tenant hair. They didn't go the full, you know, era pre World War One era. His hair should have been gone. But oh God forbid we change our Doctor's hair so he kind mm. of doesn't look as beautiful as he does in every other story. Martha gets to actually flex her muscles and show what scientific and med- medical knowledge she has. But again, she's pushed to the side and pushes the whole "you're in love with the human and it's not me." Um, Jessica Hines or Jessica Stevenson. Uh, is pushed to the extreme there is that nice moment at the end when he goes with all these you know it's a really horrible moment of the Doctor like people look at Kilgrave that Tennant plays in in um, Jessica Jessica Jones Jones and says he's this manipulative evil man if you watch the 10th Doctor in that episode he's incredibly emotionally manipulative towards uh, Jessica Hines Jessica Stevenson's character they're going he's still in here he's not coming back but the part of him that you love is still here. You should come with me. And try. It's really manipulative and it's really um, a horrible, horrible thing to do from our, our lead character. So to see, you know, the ninth Doctor compare himself to a Dalek is absolutely, you know, fine for me compared to this man emotionally manipulating a woman to come with him. So thank heaven she stands up and goes, um, no, what you're doing is completely wrong. So there's a lot in that story and it's highly regarded. So many people, when they think of a 10th Doctor story, I hear it all the time. He just, they throw out, oh, it's, it's you know, the family of blood and it's, oh, it's a beautiful thing. And even the, the family of blood themselves are a little bit hammy. Like, um, Harry Lloyd is, is so over the top. The guy who plays father of mine is over the top and he's a beautiful actor. Um, the creepy girl with the balloon it, you know I think the creepy girl in Resur- uh, Remembrance of the Daleks does a far better job and she wears a, a, a bicycle helmet for no apparent reason <laughs> so and also it's got <laughs> for me as an avid cricket fan and someone who grew up playing cricket to you, you what uh, it's it's the same thing as kind of watching David Bowie throw the crystal ball in Labyrinth. <laughs> watching David Tennant bowl that cricket ball, I'm there going, you've never bowled a cricket ball in your life, sir. And <laughs> He's it shows... a Doctor Who fan. For someone who goes on to marry the daughter of Peter Davison. Did you know he's married to the daughter of Peter Davison? No did you know that? Peter yeah. Davison is actually now related in some way to David Tennant. Did you know that, Rob? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that's inexcusable to watch that and go... That has been edited within an inch of his life, so no one can actually see that David Tennant cannot bowl a cricket ball. So, so from from just that little nitpicky thing to everything else, I think it is a highly overrated story. And I, I, it, when I want to go watch a modern era or even a David Tennant story, I don't race to watch uh, Human Nature. It'd be interesting to see what the initial drafts, apart from the book, that uh, Cornell submitted to RTD before RTD put his magic all over <laughs> it'd be very interesting to see what that original script yeah. was yeah Thomas Sangster was good though the kid oh the kid was great yeah. that's that, Thomas that, Sangster, that, that's a lovely moment at the end yeah. there, and it's kind of that. that's a moment that's yeah it's it, and it's more of a slap as opposed to the punching that happens all the way through that beautiful moment at the end at the end of his life he's there in his wheelchair and he looks up and he sees the doctor and Martha with the the with poppy, poppy on them yeah. yeah that's a beautiful moment and instead of being rammed down your throat it's kind of like just you know placed in your mouth and your mouth is covered over until you swallow it because you can't breathe so but that yeah <laughs> as opposed sort of to like a gimp mask <laughs> put on Release the gimp motif. Mm. Uh, bring out Shara's Jack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's yeah. my uh, number one overrated uh, wow. story. Very good. I've only seen it the once at the time of broadcast. No, I have very fond memories of, of, of the episode itself. So might be one to, to go back. I think a lot of people, in terms of, you know, we're, we're looking at stories that we regard as being overrated and, and we're giving a bit of analysis. I think a lot of people just plonk themselves in front of the telly and just watch it and, and, and they engage with the story with their emotions yeah. more than they, they sort of are prepared to sort of question what's being presented to them. And I think that's a fault of Moffat, especially, and also with Russell T a bit. They just go, let's just get it out there. Let's mm. just grab them by the emotional throat and get them to feel everything in that 45 minutes and then let them go and run away. It's kind of like an emotional one-night stand is that you don't have to deal with the consequences until afterwards. You wake up the next morning and you go, oh, hang on, that doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Are they going to call me in the morning? Um, <laughs> am I ever going to see that person again? No, they yeah, snuck and, off. And <laughs> yeah, and they've moved on. No, too late. We're already gone. We're moving on to the next story. <laughs> so all those questions come up afterwards, but in the moment you're so caught up in it and there's mm. all those questions need to be answered and need to be resolved. But they aren't. So mm. that's sad. Yeah, but they aren't. So just move on. It's... You've been abused and used. Mark, do you have any thoughts? I've only watched it the once, I'll be honest with you. It comes down to that thing where I don't go back and watch New Who more than once. <laughs> Very rarely. I have. I did sit down and watch uh, Flatline a couple of weeks ago. Is that still good? Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I I've Flatline. always said, apart from the first two episodes of Series 8 and the last two, I actually think that run of episodes was the best run of episodes for me since Series 1. Yep. Thoroughly enjoyed uh, what he did with it and series 9 the highs were high and the lows were extremely low but 8 um, was a bit more consistent for you so 8 was more, much more consistent I just think the stories a bit, had a bit more fun in them yeah uh, where these are all a bit down and, and the girl who waited to act didn't really uh, <laughs> didn't really uh, flat my boat either but um, yeah look maybe uh, maybe I will go back and watch that one day one day one day maybe one just, day we'll go back to that again. episode yes yeah. one day doubt it <laughs> I have a better telly to watch. <laughs> Mark, what is your number one? My number one is the day of the doctor. Why don't you? You're just about to dra- do the equivalent of drowning kittens. What are you doing? Whereas <laughs> <laughs> oh. I call the two doctors 2.0. Uh, it was voted recently by the uh, readers of the Cardiff Pravda as the best story uh, in the last 50 years. However, the Cardiff as the Pravda. After- <laughs> <laughs> as the afterglow of the 50th anniversary slowly recedes into the distance of reflection, uh, it's actually, in my opinion, a fairly average story with a nice few set pieces, but nothing more. Whereas the five doctors enthusiastically embrace its past, the story only embraces its more recent past, but with a few old bones to uh, keep us old farts happy, mainly like me and <laughs> you, Rob, as well. The, the Zygon invasion and magic painting subplot are actually quite disposable, and John Hurt is just phoning it in, in my opinion, as he did in Merlin, as the new incarnation of Peter Cushing's Doctor Who. That's <laughs> how so I get around it. I can't. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> This is how Rick Conning Mark, <laughs> you've set yes. fire to these kittens before you've decided to drown them, haven't you? I think he has, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's deep fried them as well. Exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't it be more interesting to see a canon doctor, such as, oh, I don't know, Paul McGann, uh, going from hero to warmonger and back to redeemer? However, look, I do admit if I was nine or ten and I was watching it, I would think that it would be the greatest story ever. However... I'm not that. I don't have the same amount of fondness I do for Sad the Five Doctors because I was that age when I saw the Five Doctors and I, I, I love that story much more 
than this. I can't believe you said the five doctors is better than them. That's so beautiful. It is. I, I think it in is. Your, because it's, opinion, much, it's yeah. much more nostalgic fan wank. Of course, because you saw uh, it at what, that age. Yeah. yeah, and I can understand the approach they took for Day of the Doctor, and I was not expecting to have every classic Doctor shoehorned in it, because that's just plain dumb. Yeah. However, look, you know my opinions of the war, Doctor. I'm not going to dredge it up. I can't um, say I'm surprised that you've gone for this one as your number one. That's for oh, sure. Oh, look, yeah. Certainly not the top story in the last 50 years. I think that's ridiculous. I think Blink is a much stronger story. I think, you know, if they had to redo the polls again, I reckon when they do redo the polls again in two or three years' time, this will be probably in the top 10. It will not be number one. And I'm not saying Kate's of Androzani should be number one. I think... Uh, It'll be probably something else. I mean, Listen's fantastic. Uh, Heaven Sense, I think, would be definitely, I reckon, the next time DWM do their poll, be in the top 10. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, you know, you know using 45 minutes with yeah, one was, of the greatest actors brilliant. ever supposed to be. Absolutely role. brilliant, yeah. So, um, there you go. Yeah, that's well, my equivalent of uh, killing kittens, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, again, it's the whole case of you're looking at, it's a 70, 70 minute telly movie and television can only do so much in the way of you know it it can only achieve so much television strength is with its words cinema's greatest strength is in its pictures mm. so we're never going to get you know a 90 minute you know visual f- spectacular feast with beautiful storyline going through so it had to be what they could do on a television budget and it's about in the end it's going to be about guy white guys in a room talking and so what are they going to talk about? And they're going to talk about the big thing that a lot of people go, oh, it's continuity retconning or something. But the idea of whether this man who we have admired or this character we've admired for so long actually had the capacity, which was just used as a, you know, a story gimmick that Russell T brought in. But for Moffat to go, actually, let's look at this, okay? You're sure he wiped out his entire planet. Brr. Eccleston going, I watched it happen. I made it happen. Oh, that's awesome. But let's look at the believability. Could this man wipe out an entire planet of his own people? And having those questions like, how many children were on that? Could the doctor, a man who children worship, actually do such a thing to wipe out all these children? It's just... Uh, it's uh, for me that was a fascinating concept to watch to see three, you know, white dudes sit around and talk about could you know this alien white dude um, wipe out a whole heap of white kids. Oh, and, oh, <laughs> but but if he could pull the trigger to kill one man, i.e. Davros in Resurrection, uh, I, I don't know. Look, uh, is the Five Doctors perfect? No, it's not. And <laughs> Day of the Doctor is so much better directed. First of all. For that nostalgia factor for me, what works a lot better is is the five doctors. And I just think uh, that's just my personal opinion. I rest my case. <laughs> case closed. What I find is the fundamental outcome and the fundamental tragedy of this story is that the ninth doctor is guilt-ridden for absolutely no reason. Well, yeah, it is a case of... And I, 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 lo- I love Day of the Doctor and I love watching Day of the Doctor, but I still have that in... Every time I watch it, I still have that thought of what could have been. Mm. You know it was written for Eccleston. It was so written for Eccleston. There was no other... And they didn't have enough time for rewrites as it's been revealed. As as John Hurt said, he said, I was offered the role and I was gone the next day down to to Cardiff to start filming. Yeah, so they had no time. They had to start filming. 
Hurt hadn't even really read the script. He had to learn it as he went. So they hadn't changed it. It was meant to be for the Ninth Doctor. And so it's... Um, and to see what Eccleston could have done with it is always going to hang over my head. And I'm, I'm going, it's a remarkable achievement with the time they had and the money they had to get that point and to celebrate the Doctor in that way for a 50th anniversary. But yeah, it, I always look at it as, you know, it, this is what we got. But what we could have got could have been something really special. Is it the number one story ever made? No. But Mark, I mean, it's, we're so close to the transmission date. That people, you can understand why something like this, which was you know heavily advertised, heavily anticipated, and to a large extent when it was screened, it was heavily celebrated, will have that you know that that rosy glow around it for you know an extended period of time. You're right. In the next five to ten years, it will begin to slip down the ratings as other stories rise. Um, but you know, as you've said, you know, five doctors for you. You're nine years old, etc. It's the heavy glow of nostalgia that keeps it buoyed for you. There are kids who I was with at the cinema who were, you know, fans of Doctor Who at the time, who will walk away from that and they'll, they'll forever cherish it the day of the Doctor like you do the five Doctors. I totally get it and I agree with it. But it's not, in my opinion, the number one story ever made. Especially, yeah. this, especially this close to transmission. Cardiff Prava, take note. <laughs> anyway, what is your number one? What is your equivalent of uh, killing kittens? I have gone with the girl in the fireplace. I'll get all the good things out of the way. And there are a lot of good things. There are a lot of good things. It is sumptuous. It's beautifully designed and, you know, the costumes and the, the architecture, it's, it's, it's lovely appointed. Um, it's very well acted. You know, Tennant does some really good work with the material he's given. Uh, the clockwork androids are, are, you know, a lovely creepy monster that Moffat, Moffat came up with. That, that, that's, that, you know, they're, they're visually striking when you see them sort of unveiled. The problem with the girl in the fireplace is that it's not really Doctor Who. I've, as I said earlier, as I said earlier in the, the the podcast, for me, Doctor Who can't support the idea of a romance. It, it, it's not really designed for a, you know. It's an adventure. It's exciting. It's scary. It's dramatic. It's it's all this. But in terms of depicting a love story, for me, it doesn't really work. The Doctor is not a, a figure of romance. He's not someone to be wined and dined or be whining and dining anyone of any particular persuasion. It just it doesn't work for me. Um, and like a lot of modern era shows, it, it, this, The Girl in the Fireplace is really designed to engage with your emotions more than anything else. And I, look, it probably speaks to you know, potential personal issues with me. I don't want my emotions engaged in this particular way. I find it really deeply uncomfortable to see the doctor engaged in, the, in a sort of a, a, a will-they-won't-they romantic um, pursuit or romantic storyline. And it's it, it, it's a little bit schmaltzy, and it also is fundamentally creepy because the Doctor encounter, encounters Renette or Renee when she's a child, <laughs> and in the space of what effectively is, a, is several hours, he's fallen in love with you know someone he's known for at first as a child and is now an adult and there's 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 where where's the spark where, where does it all come from it, it, it just it just feels wrong have you seen so fire miles <laughs> well yes and he was actually going out with her at some point wasn't he yeah yes. he was going out with her yeah. they were they were actually dating at the time of yeah. girl in the fireplace yes. look i can understand why a certain uh grouping of fans love it you know it it, it, it ticks all those boxes but I, I just don't see it as a Doctor Who story. If it was any other show, 
anything else yes hats off great wonderful i love it but for me it is fatally undermined by the fact that I don't regard Doctor Who as a, a, a series that can can depict a romance between the lead character and anyone else. It's really interesting that, for, for me, I find it astonishing that for for a, lo- a lot of LGBT uh, members of the community who are huge Doctor Who fans, they relate to Doctor Who in when it was in the classic era hmm. because he was asexual because there weren't weren't that many characters on television they could relate to. They were incredibly you know butch macho, and athletic yeah. and also you know, yeah macho you know heterosexual characters. So for they couldn't identify it. So to have someone like the Doctor who is clearly asexual, not interested in any type of sex, was something that they could you know, relate to and, and uh, as a character. So, for, and then for someone, you know, Russell T with, who's, you know, clearly a gay man to come and take the show and then make the character that he grew up with into this heterosexual, sexually based lead character. And that was very much a Tenant thing. Tenant was very much the matinee idol, good looks. He was the lover boy doctor, which was played down a bit with Eccleston. There are moments, especially like in Bad Wolf when he's hitting on Jenny with a, with a Y. Um, but then, oh, that's right. You got to save Rose, um, and they, you know, and then Moffat takes it out with with um, Matt Smith and Capaldi. But Tennant was the lover doctor. He was made as and and with his third episode, bang, girl in the fire. A fourth episode, girl in the fireplace. They make him the love interest. But even Sarah Jane is referring to him as if he's an ex lover, mm. as opposed to when he mm. was, you know, Tom Baker introduced him. She's my best friend. That's right. They were always friends. There was never this undercurrent of romance but Russell T turned this asexual character into a generic heterosexual um, almost uh, American love interest um, which is quite fascinating why he went with that avenue and it couldn't just be purely for the fact that he was trying to bring in a female audience Um, I think that's a bit of a cop out so for me personally the writing of Tenant's Doctor is a lot stronger it's the first strong sign of how his doctor should be because they don't really know how to write for him in the first three stories and then you get to the Cyberman two-parter and he's appallingly written but in this one he's got this flighty you know um, absent-minded scatterbrain type way of delivery that Moffat gets quite well and you don't really see for that much in the series there's a little bit of it in Fear Her but you kind of forget that because it's such a horrible final you know 30 minutes um, so yeah, it, it really is a case of trying to cram into this character who's been embraced by a lot of people. And I I'm, I'm, don't mean to be offensive. I'm just singling it out to the LGBTI community. But that he was he became such an iconic figure for a lot of people because he wasn't that cliched, typical lead hero, especially in a sci-fi series where you had Kirk or... Or, or you know Han Solo, or those type of characters were very you know heterosexual, very physical. To have a character like that, you can embrace, then completely switch it and almost betray what the character was for thirty-five years or forty years. To then go into such a cliched st- style of uh, lead character was um, was very disappointing, and it shows very clearly in Girl in the Fireplace because it is. You know, a, a tragic love story. Well, the teenage girl audience definitely got on board during a ten era because, as you said, he had that matinee idol, idol matinee looks, idol yeah. looks. and they played up on and that. And they played it up on it big time. Yeah, um, and that did carry on to Matt Smith, and I think that's why there is a slight reserve towards Capaldi because he is not hot. Yeah, so they probably did themselves a bit of a disservice actually having two good-looking guys 
uh, two young guys. Yeah, as well, yeah, yeah, two young guys because they think now that is what the doctor should be. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of press about the young fans going, you know, against Capaldi because he was old and not hot. But there's also quite a few fans, young fans, young female fans who I've talked to and interviewed mm. and stuff, and they were embracing the fact that, you know, we're not in this because of how good looking the lead is. We're in this because we love the show. Mm. And they were embraced and they respected Capaldi as an actor and you know and a lot of him you know found, found him hot because he is him in the button up shirt and the velvet red jacket come on you know that you know that make me turn my head maybe I, I shouldn't either. be looking at YouTube videos of young girls wailing and go why is Matt Smith going you know <laughs> and, and those sort of reactions and see the reaction from the Capaldi um, uh, launch uh, you know, it's like who's that he's old <laughs> you know so yes that's why I've blocked YouTube in I th- my yeah house. I think it's it's a yeah. small vocal minority yeah. that is that, uh, that that has been focused on in the yeah. press and that, they're the usually the ones who make the most noise aren't yeah they? so yeah so anyway that's all our uh, top five isn't it there was no doubling up so that's fantastic you've got mail we requested on our uh, barely used Facebook page some commentary and it was actually used this week so that's great thank you very much keep them coming uh, Damien Zanik uh, says uh, here are my top five overrated stories so let's whiz through them Tomb of the Cybermen the classic memory cheat story unlike Enemy of the World its reputation diminished when viewed uh, viewing the whole story uh, Damien clearly goes mental by saying that Genesis of the Daleks he's <laughs> seen it way too often <laughs> the cure for that is not to see it way too often it's a good story but that's six episodes way too long there are a lot of other Tom Baker stories which hold up much better on repeated viewings as a person who's wow. deeply interested in the Nazis, I can't believe you'd say that. Uh, <laughs> his next one is Shada. Uh, being incomplete has given it some mystique, but it's an average story ending, an average season, uh, barring City of Death, of course. Uh, mm. Second last one there is Remembrance of the Daleks. As this is surrounded by other lesser quality stories, it appears much better than it is. Same goes mm. for Fenric. Uh, and his last, or his uh, last entry there, School Reunion. Elizabeth Sladen made this work, but take her return away and the rest of the story is ho-hum. When you think about it, this is described as the one Sarah Jane came back in. Uh, which actually is quite true, I think. It is actually quite true. I saw it on a repeat a few uh, months ago, and I was watching it and going, as Damien says, uh, if Elizabeth Sladen wasn't in it, It'd be a very, very average episode, nearly yeah. fear her type uh, type of episode, mm. really. Yeah. So yeah, I totally agree. David so. Kitchen. All right. Okay. He he's got Genesis of the Dalek as well. Oh. Davros and Nida are great. Nida. Some, Nida. That's right. Nida. Um, a great. Oh, that's um. Uh, Peter Miles. Doctor Lawrence. Yeah, yeah Doctor Lawrence. Yeah. Um, uh, has some great lines, but the whole central concept and most of the plot points is nonsense. Wow. Enemy of the world, Dave, where are you coming from? Yes, we were excited. It was found and episode one looks great, but we find out that the underground bunker way too late in the story. The Doctor spends four episodes wondering if Salamander is a goodie or a baddie when the audience knows from the start he's a baddie. Nah, it's kind of like the Columbo thing. Columbo <laughs> didn't know till the end, but we all knew who the baddie was. And the ending is rushed. Yeah, that's fair. That's a, that's a fair call. Snake dance. Drab, slow, boring, without any of the charm or ideas of Kinder. Eleventh hour. Wow. wow. Lots of silliness and an obvious plot. 
And, well, yeah, I agree with this one too, obviously, uh, actually. Waters of Mars. Hmm. High impact on first viewing. Fails to hold together on repeated viewings. Seems to suggest suicide is the <laughs> answer. Yeah. And then fails to follow on that with the Doctor seemingly learning no- <laughs> nothing from it. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah. Mm, thanks, Dave. Waters of Mars, in that that whole special year was just awful, wasn't it, really? Oh. And I suppose that Waters of Mars was seen as a highlight. Um, and again, I guess it was a case it was a highlight amongst a lot of rubbish. Really. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Waddell uh, says Case of Andazani, the best Blake 7 uh, story ever. What is wrong with these people? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, you're all looking at my Talons of Wen Cheyenne thing as a bit differently than how are you? I was just swimming in the shallow end of the controversy pool. Mate, this is the deep end and the sharks are out, so strap yourself in, boys. Inferno. Oh, that's it. I'm Two out of stories here. in one. Uh, neither particularly great. The War Games is four episodes too long. Blink, good, but not that good. But lots of plot holes. Uh, Waters of Mars, can't stomach the bit where Ten hears a knocking and says this isn't the four knocks referred to. And he now knows what they are, so Cos, obviously, he didn't. Uh, Another uh, contribution here uh, from Alex Rowan. He prefaces by saying, None of these stories are by any means the worst. They just don't deserve the uncritical plaudits that they seem to get. I don't know, are these people drinking the Kool-Aid? The Caves of Androzani. (laughs) I mean, it's a good... Alex says it's a good story, well acted, but it reads as a creepy kidnapper stalker's manifesto. (laughs) And that's a bad thing? Uh, He then goes on to Earthshock. The dialogue is atrocious, the acting variable, and the decision to kill Adric was nothing short of a betrayal of the program's young audience. Ah, well... no, every opinion is valid. Uh, Inferno... (laughs) Great performances in this, but at least an episode too long, too many hilarious bigoted lines for Greg Sutton, and an awful lot of dime store monsters with ye oldie house of fangs and fun fur. Oh, I, I love the prime lords. Um, the invasion. My God. Oh, what's going on? Uh, ostensibly a Cyberman story, and probably one of their best by virtue of the fact that they're barely in it. Uh, that's true. Uh, some very odd editing to get rid of a major character, and of course, the villain sees the light in the final episode after a quick chat with the Doctor. The unit troops, especially the Brig, have none of the depth of characterization they had in the Web of Fear. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yep, yep. Bernard Duff, or Bernard Duff, he's got image of the Fendal. People say it's a Hinchcliffe uh, stray, but actually it's stamped with William's lack of quality. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Gone for the throat uh, there. Gone right for the Fenric throat right there. Uh, Curse of Fenric. <laughs> okay. For me, it's got some bad actors, an unclear plot, and too much shouting. Sure, it's got real great elements, but they do not make it greater than the sum of its parts. Come on, you kill Nicholas Parsons. What more do you need? Anyway, Time Warrior. Okay, Aww. okay, now just you, you, you calm down. Um, <laughs> yes, it's got a cracking script and gives new life to the by now jaded Pertwee, but the director messes up every shot in studio and the results um, are studio scenes that Peter Moffat might take, make. <laughs> yeah, it was directed poorly. They talk about that in the audio commentary. They bring the same director back in uh, Nightmare of Eden. That's, That's right. how good he was. That's right. And they fired him halfway. Amy's Choice. Oh, Yes, it's a, a great production and a delicious look, but we get Amy killing her unborn child on a vague chance of life. The baddie virus thing, or whatever it seems to be straight out of uh, the DWA Kitties comics. Ah, oh, come on. 
Uh, Toby is amazing in that film. Uh, in that episode, Waters of Mars again. Okay, another. This is a a, a regular thing. Uh, surrounded by utter dross. <laughs> On either side, Doctor Who starved fans worship this false god. That's what we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. With its bo- <laughs> with its bollocks robot and its token gay scientist. It's off-screen suicide, tenant overacting, and a Mars base named after a pop singer. So far, it's up its own ass that needs an operation to retrieve it. Oh, uh, I want to clarify one point. What's he that? wasn't just a pop singer. He was a goddamn legend. He was a legend, yes. Wow. That, anyway. is, that is some impressive stuff there. And uh, The last one is from uh, Rob Irwin from the Doctor Who show <laughs> uh, that uh, Dave Kitchen is now appearing on. Uh, he's kept it very brief. He says... The Daleks, The War Games, City of Death, Ghostlight, and Inferno. <sighs> We're slaying him tonight, aren't we? Wow. <laughs> Gee, you thought I was uh, hard not, on Day of the Doctor. Yeah, that's hard enough. There's no tall poppies here. Mate, those poppies have been nuked and napalmed. That's <laughs> terrible. I oh, thought well. that no one would touch, no one would touch Caves of Androzani, but all those people did. And I think, like, Rob, Rob Shearman said it best about Androzani in uh, the, when they did the, the 50th anniversary poll of greatest stories and they said what it is about Anrazani that makes it so good it's not a traditional Doctor Who story yeah it doesn't follow the usual tropes of what a classic or traditional Doctor Who story is it's regarded so highly because it is out of the ordinary and because it is so unlike what we're used to no one puts a you know a classic Doctor Who story would be you know like um you know, the death to the Daleks or something like that, where the Doctor shows up, has some, goes on a mysterious planet and has to save something. Or evil, the planet of evil, or something like that, which is a very generic Doctor Who story. But with Anrazani, it is so different. So is it a Doctor Who story? Not really. But we appreciate it because the Doctor Who format can be so, you know, variable in its style. Actually, I'm surprised you didn't mention Caves of Anrazani. I thought that would have been on, the, on your hit list. I love Caves of Androzani. Oh, good. Didn't I like Excellent. It? See, that's yeah. good. Even as a callow boy, when I was watching Caves of Androzani, I was, you know, I was, I knew enough to be aware that this is different, but really responding to it. So I knew it was very different because it only ran for four minutes on the ABC because he edited the crap out of it. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's yeah. like for for me, the whole era of Peter Davison's time, he. He plateaus for the entire thing. He's he's solid through the entire three years. He never drops in quality, no. but he never really excels. He hits some high notes. I think he does incredibly well in Frontios. I think he has some beautiful moments in The Five Doctors. But it is Caves of Anrazani that really sticks, you know, out. sticks out as a, a yeah. really solid piece of work. Now, before we go, Rob, uh, thank you very much for appearing on this uh, special edition of 42 to Doomsday. It's been a pleasure having you back yet again. We won't leave it so long next time. (laughs) Uh, But have you got anything you want to pimp or plug before you you set off? Yeah, I'm just about to head off to Albury to do Who Me for the first time there. They're doing a... a, um, Borders Dimensions, which is like a, a pop culture event. Me and a Hex from Good Game on the ABC. We're going uh-huh. up to be special guests. I'm doing Who Me There, which will be great. I haven't uh, dusted off the old show since I was in Wonderland Festival in Brisbane last year. And later in the year, I'm going back up to Brisbane for Wonderland again. They've invited me back to do my uh, Star Wars show, The Heart Awakens, and also do a one-off performance of Who Me again because we sold out last year and a lot of people in Brisbane missed out on the chance of seeing uh, Who Me. So I'm doing it again as well as a full seat, just doing it as a one-off special. Uh, but I'm also doing uh, The Heart Awakens up there as well. Jen Spears is coming up with me. 
So more information, go to my website, robloyd.com.au or follow me on Twitter, Future Robbie, or on Instagram, Facebook. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, still on LinkedIn. Endorse me there. <laughs> Endorse me there, exactly. Have you got anything else you want to say before we depart, Rob? Uh, no, just once again, thanks for Rob for coming on the episode. As always, his insights enliven our turgid rantings. <laughs> yeah, yeah fair enough. I love to balance out the turgidness of podcasts. Well, it's just nice to get something a bit more enthusiastic about the program than what we are at the moment, but uh, <laughs> it's all good. Now, before I go, I'm going to go all Casey Kasem on you guys, and I've got a long distance dedication to, uh, to, to make, so I'll just put some uh, appropriate music underneath later on. Now, in our Drag Through the Archives uh, podcast, uh, Rob Lloyd, you'll remember that uh, particular episode well. I know you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reminiscing about uh, my yay old videotape trading days with my buddy Pete. I won't give out his last name. Anyway, by the awesomeness that is the internet, he was checking Twitter one day and our podcast, somebody retweeted our podcast and he decided to have a listen to it. And all of a sudden he started realising that I was talking about him. So then he contacted me and I was, I gave him the, the thorough questions and I, you know, really, are you this guy? Are you this guy? And it is. So I'm delighted to say we're back in touch after a 25, 26 year gap. Pete, if you're listening, hello. Uh, I'd like to say, first of all, thank you on behalf of Victorian uh, fandom circa 8889 for sending us all the great stuff you sent over. I'd also like to make an apology in public for uh, sending back to you Arca Infinity uh, time flight and also <laughs> Black Orchid. Uh, so the internet never ceases to amaze me. Look at that. That's beautiful. Bringing yeah. people together. So Rob. Pete, if you're listening, hi. I've still got the uh, John Pertwee Ultimate Adventure poster you sent me. It's a massive day bill poster and I actually got it signed by the great man himself. Oh. Yeah, so that uh, I should get that. Russell T. Message. Davis? Oh, marvellous So there you go Kildemarge Kildemarge Pew pew Yeah, pew pew So speaking of pew pew I've been Mark (laughs) I've been Rob I have also been Rob But with less bile Keep Keep punching. Punching You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.